I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. Uh, So it is the month of March 2021, and we are in the midst of our special event month, March of the Monsters. Um, Basically, we are celebrating the impending arrival of uh, Godzilla vs. Kong from 2021, uh, by taking a look at the earlier uh, filmography of both the titular monsters. <laughs> so that would be, of course, Godzilla and King Kong. Uh, so we kick things off this month uh, with a review of the original King Kong from 1933. And it seemed appropriate to continue that trend uh, basically by advancing in the timeline. Uh, basically, we're perhaps going to be tackling these in chronological order, but uh, it seemed fitting to follow up the original King Kong with the original Godzilla. Uh, or Gojira, if you want to call it by its Japanese title, from 1954, uh, directed by Ishiro Honda. Um, More than likely, (laughs) just so you know, we're probably going to be calling him Godzilla, uh, because uh, Japanese pronunciation isn't that difficult, but uh, jumping back and forth between English, Japanese, and English tongues in the same sentence, that's a motherfucker, uh, even for me. (laughs) So uh, henceforth, more than likely, we'll, we'll be referring to him as Godzilla. Um, so, uh, much like we did with, uh, King Kong last week, I figured it would be appropriate to start off by just, like, sharing a little something about our personal backgrounds, uh, with the title character. So, in this case, uh, Kyle, uh, why don't you let the folks at home know, uh, what your background is with the big G, Godzilla himself? That's a great question, Trevor. Thank you for asking that question. Uh, so, my experience with Godzilla, uh, much like most white kids born after 1990, uh, or born in the uh born and raised in the 90s basically uh was godzilla 1998 starring matthew broderick and that lady from she devil um and hank azaria i think that's the third the number three and harry Shearer as well don't forget him yes uh three cast members from the simpsons basically yes yes um, that's the most important thing about the cast and and of course john renault um oh, kind yes, of in john- his prime <laughs> in in the eyes of most americans anyway i love john renault in that movie i I, I know it's not good for as, as a Godzilla property. I still enjoy watching that movie. I think it leading up to... Once Godzilla's on screen, it it goes to absolute shit. But I think the build-up in that movie is pretty good. Uh, so that was my first experience with Godzilla. And movie soundtracks, by the way. Uh, it was a very, very popular movie soundtrack. Uh, remember that P. Diddy's Puff Daddy song? Because it was Puff Daddy at the time. Uh, yeah, no, um, I, I thought you were referencing the score. Oh, um, no, no. Okay. <laughs> okay. Score. Um, but no, I, I do remember that CD selling very, very well, and I do remember the music video, the Puff Daddy music video. Um, I did see Godzilla 2000, and because uh, Godzilla 98 was my first experience with it, with Godzilla, I thought Godzilla 2000 was fucking stupid. I'm like, this looks nothing like Godzilla, guys. Like, what is going on here? And then I haven't really touched it until Godzilla 2014, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then it's not Godzilla technically, but I definitely watched Gamera and uh, this, the 1954 Godzilla, around the same time. Um, and then, of course, the what's the most recent one? of the king of the monsters which was also yes. a lot of fun so pretty much just american stuff with a couple of little japanese tidbits oh i did see uh mecha godzilla as well i believe you let me borrow that or at least recommended it uh 
which one was it was it the original flavor or extra crispy or <laughs> uh it seemed like the 80s it might have been the 70s you sound like rocky balboa now yeah <laughs> yeah it was it was probably from the 70s okay and, uh, then yeah um was was there more than uh well, shit, it was both terror. of them had more than one monster. Oh, Terror of Mechagodzilla. Yeah, okay. Terror of Mechagodzilla. So that was actually his second appearance. Um, and more than likely, yeah, you did watch that because I lent it to you or I, I yeah. kind of twisted your arm to watch it because that was one of my favorites and continues to be one of my favorites. Um, but that's really <laughs> that's really funny, Kyle, because what, basically what you're saying uh, in as many words is uh, your, your exposure to Godzilla has been like 10% 90s childhood mm. and like 90 percent talking about movies with me <laughs> yeah. yeah pretty much <laughs> because because like probably three quarters of the movies you listed are ones that we've reviewed for this show yeah or i you know told you oh you should definitely watch that one yeah i had no reason to visit godzilla properties until you came along so <laughs> <laughs> well you're welcome <laughs> i i hope <laughs> i guess yeah no, yeah. no I, I like this guy. I like this Godzilla movie. No, well, I mean, it's the first one. It's in the Criterion Collection. Did something right, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to Shin Godzilla. I'm I'm really looking forward to vis- uh, to seeing that. Yeah, I'm actually like not only looking forward to rewatching that. I've seen it like three times at this point. Um, I but more importantly, I'm looking forward to talking about it with you ah. um, because i think if you if you like actually dump some time into like you'll get a lot out of it it's a very dense movie uh, yeah. it's a it's a very very fascinating film there's a reason it won the equivalent of the japanese best picture of the year it came out um they don't just give those to anybody <laughs> it's literally one a year <laughs> and you know having it be a big special effects bonanza film uh, you don't see that in american um you don't see that in the american film industry generally no. Unless it's uh, Peter Dixon's Return of the King or something, or Titanic, but that's Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> it's like all the trophies for for James Cameron. Um, Pretty much, yeah. But yeah, I'm 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 really looking forward to talking about that one with you, especially after watching this one, uh, rewatching this one, because uh, there are some similarities there that Ooh, I, okay. I I guess I wasn't as aware how how similar they were in some regards um, so it was kind of nice to have a refresher um, uh, but for me uh, my background with Godzilla um, I'm not going to go into a shit ton of detail here because I, I could just talk about this instead of even getting into the movie itself but um, I've been enamored with Godzilla like literally my entire life um, probably before I could speak uh, probably before I could walk somehow i was aware that there was a thing called godzilla and i loved it um my bath toys when i was a baby were little godzilla figurines we had a big one and we had a little one that would it had it had like the pincher hands so (laughs) so like you could like attach him to things and stuff Uh, um and when i was very little um son of godzilla was my favorite and uh, actually i very recently picked up the criterion uh showa era Mm -hmm. uh, box set and good for you good for you yeah, it deserves to be in my home. It needs to be in my home, frankly. And uh, it's a handsome package. It, it's an oblong package, for fucking sure. It's it, it hates your shelf. If you're a collector and you want to find a home for this fucker, um, good luck with that. But um, it's a very handsome package. And I'm very excited to, to revisit some of those older Godzilla films from my childhood. Uh, especially Son of Godzilla, because that was one of those 
that's one of those very rare early Godzilla movies that has not been re-released that many times. And in fact, if you try to get it on DVD right now, it's like a $80 disc. Ooh. Like, it's fucking nuts. And it's not even that good of a movie. It's just the one that was my favorite when I was a kid because I had a fucking baby. <laughs> but aside from that, we also had uh, a... I think it was recorded off of, like, TBS or something. Uh, no commercials, though. So maybe it was, like, an HBO weekend or something. But my parents had a vhs tape called godzilla's best like it was like huh. written it was written with a label maker on the on the spine of the vhs tape it just said godzilla's best so dad actually went to the trouble to label something that never happens kyle not <laughs> not not in our household <laughs> organization not not the name of the day but um that that tape had godzilla versus mothra um but ahead of that it also had terror of mechagodzilla um back to back so it was a it was a twofer it was a double header and and that was like maybe the most played tape in the house except for transformers the movie um, which both my brother and i wore the fuck out of but yeah i've been following the franchise since birth essentially uh since the late 80s and uh i'll never forget when godzilla versus biolante came out um because i don't know when it arrived in the states um, but it came out in japan in 1989 and uh, it held the distinction for a very long time uh, for being the last Godzilla movie to make its way over to American shores. Um, because in the 90s, Godzilla was just absent in this country anyway. Uh, the franchise continued uh, in Japan, uh, but there was that era where we weren't getting any of it. They weren't, Japan wasn't exporting any of those products to us uh, for a long stretch of time. And uh, that one was like, you're walking up and down the video store aisle and it's like a Godzilla movie. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What? What is this? And you know, it became like the new favorite tape in the house for, for for quite a while. In fact, I didn't own it. A friend of mine did. Um, and I remember going over to his house and he was like, king shit for a day where it's i got the new godzilla movie and i was like what the fuck (laughs) i think we watched it twice in like the same day or something (laughs) i've actually done that before a buddy uh a buddy of mine we were watching uh we watched uh drinking buddies the movie drinking buddies it's fine it's okay it's but we were drinking while watching it and (laughs) and we were sitting like sitting there drinking together watching it and we're just like do you want to watch it again like yeah I kind of do. We ended up watching it twice. I don't know why. It just both struck us at the same time. It's it's almost like a little rom-com. It's like an indie little rom-com kind of thing. Huh. That That's a curious thing. I, I can't think of another movie I've done that with other than maybe that Godzilla movie. I think it's because there's like legit drinking. It's, it's kind of nice to have people drinking in the movie and they're drinking throughout the movie. So it made it kind of fun. Yeah, it sounds like it, if you, especially with the right company and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but the last thing I'll say about early childhood Godzilla memories um, is that uh, there was a card store, like literally like a baseball card store. Um, a, it was like in the same complex as like a, a Costco we have up north here. Um, I walked in there like my, my parents were doing some some shopping at Costco and I, I went in there with my grandma who was visiting from Hawaii and uh, we, we were just like futzing around there waiting for my parents to get done shopping and stuff and i came across a bootleg vhs of godzilla versus destoroya uh, which is from 1995 and was the the film that closed the heisei era of the of the godzilla movies um 
and again remember the the last movie that came out officially in the united states came out in 1989 and this one came out in 1995 and i wasn't aware of it Mm. um so i saw this bootleg uh, on the shelf and i didn't know what a bootleg was because i was a child i was like probably it was probably literally 1995 or 1996 when i saw this thing and I convinced my grandmother to buy it for me. And, oh, my God, the picture quality was horrendous. <laughs> like, like, everything had a gray tinge to it. Uh, you could fiddle with the tracking all day long. It, it would just never figure itself out. It was subtitled actually fairly well. Um, but that was my introduction to the world of importing movies. And if you've listened to a episode of this <laughs> fucking show, you know that that's a thing that I, I've been doing. And that was the genesis of it, was stumbling across this bootleg Godzilla movie, this overpriced bootleg Godzilla movie. And then for like the next three or four years after that, that would those bootlegs would serve as like birthday and Christmas gifts because I'd tell my parents like, I don't really want anything. I just want that. <laughs> I want these piece of shit VHS tapes as we're like inching our way towards the DVD medium. Um, but yeah, uh, obviously Godzilla is very important to me. Um, and actually it's been kind of funny because Kyle uh, pointed out to me, that's like, you want to do Godzilla 54? Yeah. Really? <laughs> really? And the way I was describing it before we started recording was the, the reason why I've been pussyfooting around talking about this, like very important film is that it, it's like, feel like you're not worthy in some regard like it's like oh man it's a big deal i don't want to fuck it up <laughs> it's like meeting it's like meeting a celebrity and getting really nervous about it and uh i just felt it now was the time because you know if we did king kong we got to do godzilla yeah um makes sense but but yeah kyle you want to you want to get into the movie proper here yeah do you even run down of the movie <laughs> i mean it it's tradition kyle you want to give us a plot summary for godzilla yeah. 1954 yeah, some uh, some lizard from the Jurassic era finds its way into uh, a lovely village in Japan, uh, wreaks a little bit of havoc, and then I think he makes his... Does he make his way to Tokyo, or is it just another part of Japan? No, this time it is Tokyo. Okay. <laughs> like, that's the trope, but this time it actually... Act- it really is Tokyo. <laughs> and he gets to Tokyo, and then a cycloptic... Uh, a cycloptic uh, scientist... Uh, has to figure out a way to uh, kill him, basically. <laughs> that was sloppy, meandering. <laughs> Everyone in the room is now dumber, Kyle. I award you no points. I, I'm gonna, God have mercy on your soul. Full disclosure from listeners, I'm having a hell of a week, so if my brain power is not all there, I apologize. But do you want to give a better summary? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> I meant I'll no just, disrespect with that. No, no, I, I thought it was charming. But um, <laughs> I'll just contribute to that by just giving a little bit of a rundown of uh, the, the talent involved in putting this thing to the silver screen. Uh, because in some ways, this is like not just a groundbreaking film, um, but also like like this was a like an epoch. Like this was a, a moment where a lot of major players in the Japanese film industry uh, would all come together and uh, give us something really special and not only that like give us like a, the equivalent of like an Avengers team uh, for filmmakers ah. where it's like okay you got all those guys together working on a project we're gonna go see it because it's gonna be good um, and what I'm talking about here is uh, the director uh, Ishiro Honda um, who as far as I understand was primarily a documentary filmmaker um, prior to this uh, he lived a 
really fascinating life. I mean, just reading up on the guy was really interesting. Um, the man did like six tours in the Japanese military, um, which, which, yeah, um, you need to remember this. This was this movie came out in 1954, but the man had a life before that, <laughs> and Japan did some stuff before that, <laughs> immediately before that, um, and had some things done to them immediately before that. Uh, but yeah, he, he was drafted into the Japanese military multiple times. Um, so like every time he kind of tried to get his life together, seemed like he was being shipped off to some foreign country. And in fact, he was a POW at one point. <laughs> um, and somehow he managed to become a filmmaker after all that poor shit. Um, but yeah, primarily he was a documentarian, uh, which is kind of interesting because it actually kind of shows in the way a lot of the acting scenes are handled in this film. It, there's a little bit of like a fly on the wall feel to a lot of the dialogue scenes and not only that the the cast of thousands feel to it like we do have principal players and we do have melodrama in the form of like the relationships that form and, and are broken over the course of the drama in the film but just the sheer number of speaking roles in this film makes it feel like the story of like a whole country as opposed to just you know a love triangle which it easily could have boiled down to um, but beside him, we also have the producer, Tomoyuki Tanaka, uh, who basically was the shepherd for this Godzilla franchise up until his death, like in the late nineties. So he produ he was like, uh, the equivalent of like Albert Broccoli, uh, for the James Bond films, like the guy who, who was producing each and every one of these franchise films, um, huge, huge producer in, in Japanese film and uh, the studios Toho by the way which to this day I think is the largest in Japan um, and then on top of that though uh, we had Willis O'Brien um, last time for King Kong uh, when it came to our special effects or visual effects rather uh, mm -hmm. for the stop motion of King Kong um, but for this one we had Eiji Tsuburaya uh, who is a titan of the industry um, for this time period of Japanese film um, he <laughs> he uh, he directed a lot of propaganda films for the Japanese military. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but in doing that, and also he was a uh, aviation enthusiast, uh, which shows in, in some of the work he does in a lot of these Godzilla films. You can tell he loves model airplanes um, and suspending them from fishing line uh, <laughs> <laughs> and strapping fireworks to them. <laughs> but uh, he... Uh, he would go on to do the special effects for most of the early Godzilla films. I, I think he died in the 70s. But before that, uh, he founded his own company, uh, Tsuburaya Productions, uh, which would give birth to one of the most one of the other most enduring Japanese, uh, not film properties, but just uh, I don't know fictional like sci-fi universes. That would be the Ultraman franchise. Um, so he didn't live to see what that would become but uh, that series began in the 60s and continues to this day a new Ultraman every fucking year whether you want it or not <laughs> and uh, the last person I'll, I'll highlight here um, and I'm not even going to get into the cast until we get into it but uh, the last person to highlight here is uh, Akira Ifukube uh, who's the composer and holy fucking shit uh this guy made a gigantic contribution uh to the film world uh by giving us some of the most iconic music 
in in film history if you ask me the godzilla march is one of the most iconic themes in in all of film um maybe not for american audiences but it it demands your attention like you can't you can't escape it i actually listened to like a contemporary like an orchestra i mean plenty of orchestras have probably covered it but there's a really good version on spotify that you can find oh yeah no um he his compositions for the entire godzilla film franchise and and films outside of the godzilla franchise it's it's all incredible stuff and apparently he was self-taught which is nuts yeah and uh funny enough uh trivia factoid uh, he actually did suffer some uh, radiation sickness at one point in his life uh, nothing to do with bombs um he was working he was also drafted by the japanese military and uh something to do with like working in the radiology department um resources were strapped and apparently they didn't have any lead shielding to provide their employees uh good job <laughs> way to <laughs> but, go yeah um, but yeah, all of his compositions for all of the Godzilla movies are tremendous stuff. Like, and I, some, like some of my favorite memories of childhood are like humming along to these movies and shit. Um, but that being said, yeah, we should get into the film itself. That was that was very top heavy. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> so like get, get the lead out now, so we can we can get in, get into the movie proper. I told you this get was going to happen, Kyle. You're not no. doing your job. Well, <laughs> hey man, this is your this is your movie choice. So I will. I'm not going to like. Hey, da, 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 like I'm not going <laughs> to zip it, zip, zip it. <laughs> Can't do that, but because I don't know when we can cut corners, so I'll I'll try to be mindful. Okay, well, the the film actually begins. Um, also, one one other thing to note: uh, we did this with King Kong, uh, thirty three. Um, there there are some alternate versions of King Kong thirty three. Not not terribly altered, but there there was a censored version of that film. So we did actually point out some some shots here and there that were excised from the censored cut of that film. Um, in Godzilla's case, uh, there's of course the American cut of the film. Godzilla King of the Monsters from 1956 uh, starring Raymond Burr with the the dulcet tones of Raymond Burr that man has a tremendous speaking voice <laughs> uh, Perry Mason himself um, I I'm not gonna focus too hard on comparing the two it's really there's really not much point to it um, other than the fact that the American cut is slightly streamlined like it, it moves at a brisker pace uh, so I could see that a being a plus in some regards because uh, this film doesn't drag per se but it definitely could use a little bit of trimming here and there and the the american cut actually does provide that um but the the change in the perspective is the greatest deviation uh from the from how the story is presented in the original japanese cut because we have raymond burr just on the sidelines of every important event that happens in the story. It's like, you're just conveniently everywhere that things happen. Huh. Um, whereas the Japanese one, like I said, is more, it's a bigger story that doesn't really care too much about having main characters or, or drama and stuff like that. I sent my dad a polo. Or my dad sent me a polo, like just a little message. Like, Hey, what you up to? I'm like, Oh, nothing. Just watching uh, the wailing. It's a Korean uh, horror film. And uh, he's like, you watching it with subtitles or dubs? I'm like, who the fuck watches it with dubs? Like, what's wrong with you? Why would I watch it with dubs? Subtitles. Well, I mean, it, subtitled movies were, I mean, they were a thing, like, back in the day, but they, they were less commonplace when it came to 
you know, lower budget films like the Godzilla King of the Monsters. Um, actually, the presentation of that f- version of the film is kind of interesting because uh, I that was the cut of the film I knew for most of my life because as far as I know, the Japanese cut wasn't available outside of Japan, uh, readily available anyway, until like the 2000s. Like that's the first time I knew of an official DVD release for it. And I, I certainly got it. It wasn't a Criterion disc. Um, but the 56 version was the one I knew, and what's curious about it is that it's not subtitled. Um, but there is still a fair amount of Japanese language track present in the film, because Raymond Burr and a handful of other actors who were brought in to film additional scenes parallel to the, the main footage of the Japanese cut of the film, they're all speaking English, but then they cut away to people who are supposedly in the room with him speaking Japanese, and most of them are just speaking Japanese without subtitles, and uh, the only translation we get comes in the form of the actors beside Raymond Burr telling him, he said that. He said you're fat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, most most of the actors in in the Japanese footage are just allowed to speak Japanese. It, It makes for an interesting experience, because as a child, actually, that's probably the first time I ever heard the Japanese language, honestly, um, watching the original American cut of Godzilla, um, and it wasn't subtitled, so I really had no idea what they were talking about, and it was kind of fascinating. Uh, but uh, a major difference between the way the films begin um, is the American cut uh, has a uh, it st- it throws us right into the action. So like Raymond Burr is like covered in rubble, and the movie is like it's like <laughs> it's like the original cut of Blade Runner. Where Harrison Ford's really bored and tired, and he ate a lot of cheese before he got in the recording booth to do this studio-mandated voiceover. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, the the American cut of Godzilla is riddled with with Raymond Burr voiceover to get us up to speed with every fucking thing that happens because. Uh, American B-movie distributors in the 50s had no confidence in Americans' ability to comprehend what's going on (laughs) without it being spoon-fed to them. Um, But yeah, it begins with him uh, after Tokyo's already been leveled, um, and then him being carted off to a hospital and saying, and here's how it happened, and then we roll back and we did-a-loot, back to a few days earlier. I feel like that was Terra uh, Mechagodzilla. Mechagodzilla was there's voiceover in the beginning. No, 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 no. That one begins with, uh, uh, it, it begins with a Rocky sequel montage. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Rocky sequels always begin with the last few minutes of the previous Rocky. Yeah. Um, they do that with the, the opening credits and showing the, the first fight with Mechagodzilla, but they cut out King Caesar because he's goofy looking. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this movie's more serious. <laughs> um, and then, uh, we have a girl on the, she's on the rocks and then a submarine and then titanosaurus kills the submarine yeah that's the beginning of terra godzilla can i drop us into the movie because i actually wanted to talk about how this opened uh the opening credits yeah absolutely because because I, I had some questions so uh this movie i, I again like with these old movies i'm trying to put myself in the, the like me in the theater as a kid watching this movie um this movie starts off like it's like the equivalent of mortal Kombat. we get uh Godzilla growls and roars immediately, and we've got what is supposed to it. It is kind of supposed to be the foot stomps, but it's a drum, and we got like this pounding, like foot stomp going on, and then we get. Now, is this just like um, 
like physical credits where it's just like an actual sheet of paper lighting up. Yeah, you can see the text wiggling just yes. a little bit. Okay. And I, th- I think you're spot on, Kyle. I think it's on a roller mm-hmm. and they're just like pulling it up in front of the camera. Um, it's kind of it's kind of beautiful because mm. it's Japanese kanji. It's all script, so it's all calligraphy um, to write all the cast and credits and stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, this is a major difference uh, from the American cut and the Japanese cut. Is like you said, we get Godzilla's roar in the Japanese version. Uh, we get his soon-to-be iconic march um, immediately during yeah. the opening credits. Um, it's it's the basically dun, dun, telling. Dun, dun, dun. It's the it's dun, tell- dun, 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 yeah, dun. it's yeah. it's the equivalent of that. It's yeah. the you know Kyle's iconic door knock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not. I'm not the only one that does that. I have a buddy of mine. We, we do the same knock. Yeah. <laughs> I I told my girlfriend about that and she does it now too. <laughs> <laughs> it's. It, I'll do it just. I'll just yeah. do it just randomly. So it'll be Saturday night, and I'm ready for date night, and I'll hear that. Kyle, <laughs> I was actually like... doing. I was doing it at the library today. The other guys were talking. I'm like trying to think about what i was going to type but i kept stopping and do that i realized i was doing it but i should probably stop doing that yeah it's like a virus it just it won't go away it just gets stuck in there but yeah this this movie begins with the theme the theme music that you know this is the first time anyone's hearing it so it's not iconic yet um but this is kind of securing this this piece of music's place as like this is the theme music whenever you hear this get hype (laughs) but yeah the the stomping sound effect um Really, really cool trivia factoid here. Um, so in terms of uh, credits, uh, our composer, Akira Hifukube, he should get additional credit, I hope he did, um, for doing some sound design, not just like composition of the score. He was also the guy who gave us the Godzilla roar and the Godzilla stomps. Like he he pioneered those sound effects. He did the Foley work himself, a composer. I think... Yeah. Do you I... know how they made the fucking roar? No, I, I was going to say it is the thing... I think that Godzilla has the most iconic roar because you know it's Godzilla. Like King Kong was like, uh, it was like a reverse lion roar. It was like two it, different two different roars backwards. It's like it's eh. just a tiger. Yeah, like, it, like tigers generally are like the go-to for any snarling beast kind of noise. Yeah, How it's either that or, or doom noises, <laughs> which which anytime I hear add add doom sound effect, oh my god, that or a golden eye sound effect. If I hear a sound from either of those games, it just puts the biggest smile on my face because it tells me that whoever was doing the sound design for that product gave no fucks. <laughs> because it's not like a Wilhelm scream where it's like a badge of honor where it's like, yeah, I did I did the entire soundscape for this film and then I decided to slip one in there just, you know, to let them know the job's done. Um, doom doom sound effects, it's like if 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 something falls down and goes, Whoa! <laughs> it's like, okay, I, I know that you, you ran out of buttons to push on your synthesizer, but the, the Godzilla roar is, is incredibly distinct. Um, and the reason for that is that unlike traditional sound design for creatures and whatnot, um, it involves no animal sounds as a source. Uh, they took like a resin coated, like glove and stroked it across a uh, a contrabass's strings, so like a, wow. a bass, and somehow they they tuned they tuned the sound produced by that. Who the fuck would think to do that? <laughs> and that's how we got a guard our Godzilla roar. I honestly think the plot of this movie can kind of take a back seat. I think you should just tell the listeners and tell me more like Godzilla trivia. But I also want to like discuss 
uh, once we get to when Godzilla actually comes up, I want to talk about how J- Japan, how the Japanese film uh, studio went in the direction of creating a monster as opposed to what they did in the American film industry with like King Kong. But that's yeah. That- yeah, no, you you definitely need to bring that up. But I keep trying to get away from the trivia stuff, but it just keeps it just well, keeps coming because well, the first fucking thing that we see like, in this movie is a trivia factoid. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm like the, the the plot. I mean, you can pretty much distill the plot. It it's it it's not a there there are important things along the way, but I think we could probably that's where we can cut the corners. Is you can get more about the trivia, more about the background of it, because I think with a movie this old, that's going to be more. Okay, well, well, we've we've gotten past the opening credits, <laughs> <laughs> so we're making progress. But but the very first thing that we see in the film seems innocuous until you know a little bit of history. Uh, so prepare yourself. <laughs> so our our film opens after the credits um, with like a fishing boat at sea, and it's yeah. just a bunch of people playing music. Looks plenty peaceful. And then, uh, holy shit, the ocean is boiling, and there's boiling. a flash of light, and uh, we get some footage of our, like, I think it's a telegraph they're operating. It's not even a radio. They're just, like, sending a, a telegraph, oh, yeah, it's, like... It's a uh, uh, Morse code. They're sending off, like, dee 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 Yeah, so it's not even a radio communique, but they're they're doing, like, Morse code or a telegraph or something, radioing for distress, essentially, to the mainland. They get it off just barely like. just barely because we get uh, our first miniature effects in the film mm. in the form of this fishing boat catching fire and sinking uh, like tsuburaya likes planes he likes fireworks and he loves fire yeah. <laughs> like the, if have you ever seen a picture of what this guy looks like kyle uh-uh. oh he's he has an utterly charming look to him um he, he always has a big old hat and pitch black sunglasses and he's, like, <laughs> and he's like real tiny too so it's like oh yeah that man likes to blow shit up uh, i can tell <laughs> i can it's like i can tell the pyros and and <laughs> i know the pyros when i see them man yeah he has a little bit of like a stan lee vibe to him um not as verbose like as far as i know he he didn't do a whole lot of pr and stuff but he always had that kind of like charming grandpa appeal to him um, and he loved to blow, blow shit up. <laughs> but um, the trivia that I'm, I've been alluding to here uh, comes in the form of like a, a true to life story that I I don't know if it's ever been adapted to film. But it's uh, now that we've had Chernobyl, um, you know this this could be something. We, oh yeah, also um, in Japan they actually made a film about the Fukushima incident. Uh, it's the it was the earthquake that caused the problems with the nuclear reactor yeah i remember that big fucking deal uh they actually made a film version of that story that i would very much like to see ken watanabe's in there oh nice i like him. um yeah i've heard it's very good um probably not chernobyl good but good enough <laughs> it's it's too too recent i'm sure the japanese government would prefer not to get into the nitty-gritty of some of the shit that went down um but uh the real life incident that happened here um was a a boat called the Daigo Fukuru Maru, or Lucky Dragon Number 5. Uh, basically, it was a Japanese fishing boat uh, that happened to be near the Bikini Atoll when uh, we dropped a bomb on it, like a nuclear bomb. Um, and it was a gigantic nuclear bomb, maybe the biggest that uh, the Americans have ever tested. 
and those sailors all died a horrible death due to radiation sickness and whatnot. They, I don't even think they really made it to shore, but um, that incident was what gave way uh, to the inspiration for developing this film. Gotcha. That, oh, nuclear bombs are bad. And the other really big important thing was that um, during the Japanese occupation, so post-World War II, uh, the the Japanese news outlets and the government were kind of stifled. Um, we were we were disallowing them from speaking in public about nuclear bombs. Gotcha. Um, so in the fallout of that, I don't think it was until the early fifties that those those bars were lifted. And it's like, okay, you guys can. It's been long enough. You know, you guys can do your own shit. But there were restrictions for many years. Um, so those those restrictions being lifted were also a catalyst for this film coming out when it did. Um, but yeah, uh, this fishing boat goes down, and uh, this is where we get our like initial command center for the the story unfolding. And it's mm-hmm. basically it's basically just the office, like the dispatch essentially for all these boats. It's too well lit, honestly. <laughs> I, I need it to be darker. Yeah, you need. I'm actually surprised how little smoking there is in this movie. There's no fucking smoking. I know it's nuts. I can't wait <laughs> to jump into some Japanese noir because there's gonna be so much smoking in there. Yeah, no, I mean, what what I know of Japanese culture suggests that yeah, smoking's kind of a thing. It's a big deal, <laughs> especially back in the day. Yeah. So it's kind of shocking. Maybe maybe there was some form of censorship or something. But uh, it needs to be said, 1954 was a uh, hell of a year for the japanese film industry i mean holy fucking shit we had seven samurai uh, we had uh sancho the bailiff uh, we had the first of the samurai trilogy which um probably is the first japanese subtitled film i ever saw in my life um i had a sick day from school in like fourth grade i think and my mom happened to be sick that day too and she borrowed it from the library Oh, nice. So I got introduced to Toshiro Mifune and Japanese cinema, well, proper Japanese cinema, not, you know, Godzilla movies, <laughs> um, all in one fell swoop. It was a very good day. Um, but yeah, it was 1954 was a hell of a year for Japanese cinema. But um, after this boat goes down, uh, they send a second boat to investigate the area. Um, so it needs to be said that the sheer number of extras at work in a lot of these scenes is kind of cool. It, it, it lends it a sense of reality, just like the hustle and bustle in this office. Like everybody seems like they have a purpose and like they're really jazzed about getting shit done. Yeah. And uh, all the while you have all these uh, like women, and, like elder men, like old men and women trying to push their way into the office, just like screaming about like, my husband was on that boat like what's going on it's like we don't know everybody's very confused and did you not just see the shit come in on morse code this takes a little while to fucking figure out (laughs) it's like for the love of god give me a break but they send a second boat and it goes down too and that's the only one other one that i think we see actually go down yeah it's all that yeah yeah, we're gonna send another two more and then later they're like yeah one of them's down all right, the other one's down too. Okay, yeah, they just keep going down. <laughs> yeah, it, it becomes a problem, and uh, thankfully, uh, you know, the f- the filmmaker was kind enough to not show all of that. It's like, okay, two two is good enough. We can just imply the rest of the the loss of life and damage uh, through just dialogue. So we get our uh, newspaper slides of like naval mines, undersea volcano. Like, what could it possibly be? Yeah, um, this actually 
you know, this is something I kind of forgot about this movie that I, I talked about when I was talking about Gamera and uh, how those films bear a very strong resemblance to Godzilla 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, check it out, folks at home, if you haven't heard that episode. It's an early one. Uh, we did a dual review of both both American Godzilla movies at the time. At so that the time, would be Godzilla yeah. 98 and Godzilla 2014. Um, the stylistic similarities in the presentation of the story, um, what always struck me about the Gamera films is how extensive the use is of... Uh, radio and television broadcasts and like newspaper headlines to tell to fill in the gaps of the story that uh the major players in the film really have no business knowing or expositing to us it it lends things a huge sense of reality that otherwise wouldn't be there and this film kind of does it too in the form of these headlines that Mm. kyle pointed out that occasionally major developments happen and uh, just the the state of like the public mindset is expressed to us through like news broadcasts or radio and things like that. Um, but there's a minor development here in the form of uh, a few survivors from the shipwrecks uh, washing up on uh, an island called Odo Island, and uh, we also start to get introduced uh, slowly to characters that, because in, in 1954, as a as a Japanese audience member, you would know who the stars are. So it's like oh, those people are way more hot than everyone else in yeah. this movie. Clearly, there are stars. Like, you, you, can, don't, you don't have to know who they are. You can just tell from aesthetics. Yeah, that, that was really helpful. In this. I'm like, yeah, the two hotties. I'm like, like both of them, like, ooh, wow, she's really pretty. I'm like, damn, he's handsome. I'm like, these are our main characters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. Our, our, uh, our principal players in this movie are absurdly handsome in stark contrast to, like, the Oldo Island residents who look like they're from a different fucking planet. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, they definitely did some, like, on the spot, just, like, locale casting there where it's like yeah those aren't actors yeah. <laughs> like, um, but um the the big one here is a uh, takashi shimura yeah uh, who i plays dr yamane <laughs> yeah you you know him because uh this guy's worked with kurosawa uh, like crazy yes. yeah yeah he, he's one of his go-tos he was in seven samurai the same year in fact, uh, Akihiko Hirata was was as well. I think he was the antagonist of that film. Kagimusha, uh, Ikiru, I, Ikiru. Oh, Ikiru. 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 Yeah. He's that, the, that's they, he's very good in that. That's a great a, movie. I mean, most of Kurosawa's filmography, like much like Ingmar Bergman, it's pretty much all in the Criterion. So any, I have quite a bit of Kurosawa that I need to catch up on. I need to get started actually. Yeah, Ikiru is is a uh, sad, but Look. good. It's very good, but it is depressing at times. I had a feeling. Um, <laughs> it looks depressing from the cover. Well, I mean, the, the the title means, like, to live, basically. And it's about an old man. Do the math. <laughs> I mean, from what I understand of John Cassavetes, like, he's got, like, a, a five-film box set. I'm like, I don't know, man. Those are all, like, two and a half hours long, and they sound depressing. They may, they may even be three hours long. Jesus I mean. Christ. Yeah, uh, Peter Falk yelling at people. Uh, if you like domestic abuse, yeah, cast, cast, yeah, no, I don't either. Um, I there was a gal that I kind of had a thing for back in the day that I ended up watching one of his movies to try to like have something to talk about with her, and I was like, I'm good, <laughs> I'm fine. Yeah, I forget which which Cassavetes I watched, but yeah, it, I mean, this isn't going to fill anyone in, like if they're familiar with the man's filmography, but it was Peter Falk yelling at Cassavetes' wife 
like probably, his real life wife probably husbands. and that's probably that's probably most of his movies yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah it was like two hours and 45 minutes long and it's nothing no. but just drunk husband and wife tearing the fuck into each other it was like this is awful yeah, it's good filmmaking good acting but not my cup of tea yeah um but what did you think of uh old island when we get there kyle because i i had some like feelings of warmth when we get when we get the scene shot there for some reason it just like felt nice i love black and white films where we're on a beach i actually i th- i think i'm gonna recommend another criterion release it's uh monsieur hulot's holiday it's a 1950s or 60s black and white french slapstick comedy uh about a man on vacation it's just it, it's slapstick it's like almost like peak panther kind of stuff and there's just something it's something so charming about it like just being on the beach in black and white like a french beach i don't know it's just it's really nice i, I had the same reaction when i was watching this i'm like oh, i want to watch monsieur who loves holiday now because uh, it, it's just so yeah warm i just it, it just feels so nice yeah, I, I know the feeling. Um, actually, you, you may have to send me the title for that one because I'd like to check it out. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's it's the perfect movie to get. Like, there there were certain movies you like to watch around the seasons. Like, you watch the thing around Christmas time or when it's getting cold, or movies around the summertime. I like watching Twister. That's a fun summertime movie. Jurassic Park. Monsieur Hulot's Holiday is my new one for summertime. Okay, duly noted. Um, but yeah, when we're on Odo Island. Uh, Basically, it's like a really tiny fishing village that feels like like a, a place out of time. Like this feels like from a, if, if you take your image you have in your head of like modern day Japan and you try to project that onto this, it just doesn't fit. Kyle's making a face at me. It's on HBO Max. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> okay, well, text me the title. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, we're on Odo Island and we have uh, Shinkichi who, uh, curiously enough, ends up being uh, a character in later Godzilla movies. Um, like in, in the 1995 film I mentioned, the bootleg I got, Godzilla vs. Destoroyah. Uh, like, I think his kids or something are the main characters, but obviously that wouldn't matter here. But uh, he's just a young man hanging out with like the village elder, and the two of them uh, spot a raft incoming from the ocean, I love this and guy I, yelling. <laughs> it's really it's, funny. He's got a fucking set of lungs on yeah. him, man. <laughs> it's funny. I, I think it's just his tone a little bit too. Because ah, ah. <laughs> no, he's done this before, Kyle. It's That's, really <laughs> you can tell this is something he does on the regular. I had he's a, like, I, "Holy shit, there's fish!" <laughs> yeah, I had to get. I had to giggle with that. Well, yeah, I remember. It's funny because I didn't understand him when I was a kid, but I know that sound. Like I. I could play that audio back in my head whenever I want on command because it is such a distinct yell. <laughs> but basically, he's just screaming, "Hey, there's a raft!" <laughs> and uh, they do recover like one of their village members, uh, someone named Masaji. Who the only reason I know his name is because uh, it's only said like one more time in the film right before he's killed. <laughs> I didn't realize he was killed. <laughs> that that's the thing. Um, I'll I'll get to it in a second, but um when when they're in the process of recovering this guy is when we uh oh by the way uh, we do have like some reporters and stuff starting to arrive on the island mm-hmm. um specifically one guy who was in he was in the, like the the telegraph office um during all the chaos and stuff and he has like a, a press band on his arm and a, and a camera so he's at oldo island like investigating see if any traces of the fishermen show up there um but he hasn't like brought the cavalry yet but 
um, when we're on the beach, uh, this elder, um, he expresses, he mentions the name Godzilla. Um, he actually verbalizes that, you know, back, like, it's probably Godzilla. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what's going on, but it's probably well, Godzilla. He's like, well, no fish, it's Godzilla. I'm like, wait, what? Just- yeah. And uh, Kyle was asking me about this um, before we started recording. Um, this this is like folklore fabricated specifically for this movie. So this is not like Japanese tradition or anything. Um, it's it's well documented that the name itself, Gojira, comes from a combination of the English word gorilla and the Japanese word for whale, Kujira, and just combining the two of them. Um, also, there was a rumor that um, there was a rotund fella on the production staff that they nicknamed that and then they decided hey that's a good name for that big guy over there let's call the monster that <laughs> i can see that yeah i don't know if that's true but Doubt it's it, been but... it's been both it's been both uh, denied and approved equal amounts of times but um anyway yeah this is when he mentions the name of of the titular creature uh, so he in the universe of godzilla this is apparently local folklore of some sort that there's a sea monster of some sort um, and then we have a, uh, like a dance in the village at, at, in the middle of the night. Yeah. I, I had that written down. I'm like, dance, what the hell? And then I was like, oh no, it was kind of like the wailing dance. I was thinking more like, uh, Sadie Hawkins. Like it was a dance. Oh. I'm like, I don't remember <laughs> that. Uh, say, uh, sock hop. Yeah. <laughs> no, no it, we get that in like every other Godzilla movie, but not this one. <laughs> we get, yeah, a wailing style, not a wailing style. Nobody could commit to it like that guy can. Uh, but Ooh, we, yeah, no, that, that's one thing I will say. It's like, so there are like three universal truths in Asian cinema. Uh, Koreans go hard in general. Thai stuntmen go super fucking hard. <laughs> and, uh, Japanese evacuation crowds are, they're, they're like, the top level they're the top tier of evacuation <laughs> crowds um, when it comes to extras being asked to like yeah like leave an area japanese they, they, they just do it so much better than we do yeah i think new yorkers are are supposed to be well known for not doing that like they're just jaded like eh. i mean they they made a joke of that in that uh cue the winged serpent movie where it, um <laughs> it's a there's a flying monster picking people off in New York, and the the joke is that New Yorkers never look up because they never have a fucking reason to. I was gonna say I've I've seen some of the Eric Andre show. I'm like, there's somebody always trying to fuck with you. It seems like just all the time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we get this dance that's like everybody wearing like Tengu masks or something, and apparently this was all like locals. Just I I don't know the name of the island they actually shot on, but. Um, yeah, they just got the local villagers to put on a show, and uh, we get some more exposition from the village elder talking about like, yeah, back in the day we used to sacrifice little oh, girls. Version, and stuff. yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no big deal. <laughs> it is like now you got your goddamn unions, so yeah, we're not, <laughs> we're not doing it so much. Like, Jesus, it's like yeah, we just like throw her out there on a raft, say fuck it. <laughs> Hopefully yeah, you gotta file your papers and shit. All this red tape. <laughs> oh. uh, but following the dance, uh, everybody goes to bed. And uh, this is where Masaji, who we saw, just came in from the fucking ocean. Like, oh, yeah. on a fucking handcrafted raft. He barely survived. I, I can't exactly recall how many instances uh, this has happened in, uh, in the Godzilla film series. But there's a really big one in uh, <clears throat> Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, uh, all-out monster attack. It's a good one, by the way. Yeah. I, I had to get the whole title out there because I just want to reinforce the point that I do like it. 
it is an exceptional Godzilla film. Um, be- mostly because it came out in the early 2000s and it's one of the first times they really tried to make Godzilla kind of a, a mean bastard. Ah. Like they actually tried to make him the antagonist of the film. And normally when there's other monsters in the film, he, you know, ends up being the good guy, whether yeah. he intends to or not. But this one's like, no, he's, he's, he's the motherfucker. Kind of dick. Yeah. yeah. He's kind of a, he's literally a dick in that one. Like he, he's cruel because um, in this instance, we have this guy who just came in, uh, barely survived by the skin of his teeth. And then Godzilla steps on his fucking house <laughs> in the middle of the night. <laughs> um, but not before his little brother like ran out into the rain. Cause we're in the middle of like a typhoon essentially. Yeah. Like there's, there's a goddamn hurricane outside. But um, in the, in that Godzilla movie I mentioned from the early two thousands, there's a very similar sequence where um, there's like a bunch of young people, like a pension house, like playing ping pong in the middle of the night, which is a thing you do in Japan, apparently. And uh, a young woman survives the ha- the Airbnb, essentially, being stepped on. And then when Godzilla makes landfall in, like, Tokyo, uh, he he kills her in the hospital. Gotcha. <laughs> like, on the, like <laughs> it's so fucked up. Especially, be- like, they make it doubly worse because he actually walks by the building. And she's, like, having a nervous breakdown watching him come towards the building. Um, and then she's breathes, she breathes a sigh of relief when he passes. And then his tail takes out the bills <laughs> it's so fucked up but um yeah uh this poor guy gets his house stepped on and uh this this whole sequence shot in the rain is really dramatic uh really moody lighting i, I love the the miniature effects with the with all the buildings and the the waves crashing on the shoreline and stuff yeah, do, do we see the helicopter that was sent out earlier is it do we does it come into frame or is it in frame when we so first... the camera the camera pulls back and the helicopter was in the foreground so the camera settles okay, with yeah. the helicopter there and that's that's the one ugly spot in this otherwise very solid special effects showcase is this it's helicopter a, just kind of gingerly eases over yeah it's like that's a toy <laughs> that's a yeah, model it, 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 it looks really bad like it they should have had him step on it or something but it's kind of interesting they show a little restraint here because when the house is crushed um, we do see like a sliver of his silhouette, like like below the kneecap, um, but otherwise it just looks like oh it was a windstorm and the house blew over or something. Uh, so the principal cast and we the viewer are both kind of like I don't even know what I just saw, but the the music's going fucking nuts and there's waves and there's rain. Is it was mass hysteria. Um, and then we get to the courtroom, the the courtroom drama. <laughs> yeah yeah this was interesting so we we get a busload of uh, island villagers roll up to i believe this is the diet building in tokyo uh, this is like japanese legislation or government essentially and uh they start testifying uh as to what they saw and not only that they're like citing damages yeah <laughs> so like citing how many people were killed how many how much livestock we lost in this goddamn rainstorm uh but then this is where this movie turns into a B movie every once in a while. And it's it's kind of embarrassing, honestly, because this movie is exceptional in a lot of ways. And most of it has to do with tone and just the the audacity in, in how they present the story and some of the themes that they're willing to broach in 1954. Um, 
But the goofy elements come in the form of anything involving science. <laughs> uh, I mean, I appreciate it. I appreciate that we are trying to use science. Uh, is this where we get the explanation of Godzilla of like what it what it might be, or are we just talking uh, about the damages? Because we have a couple of scenes where we're having a talk. So this is not where we go into explicit detail about Godzilla or anything like that. But what gets weird here is we have all these villagers who have like firsthand accounts of something attacking their village and you know causing a serious damage and killing some people yeah and then they just invite a paleontologist <laughs> to start speaking it's like dinosaurs yeah, yeah I, honestly it's like <laughs> it, it would be like in dante's peak having a paleontologist yeah. <laughs> it's like no shut up pierce brosnan and i want to hear from that guy i want to hear from dr alan grant it's like I don't, I don't have anything. <laughs> I, I do like this. They're like, so this is science now. We have a, we have dudes sitting on the science side. Then we have the conservatives. They're like, judge, I don't think that this is science related. I think it's something else. And I like the village lady's trying to talk. And he's like, shut up. <laughs> just, <laughs> just his, his, he might have said be quiet, but it was a vicious be quiet. Just his demeanor when he's talking like this is fine. Be quiet. <laughs> he gets back to his uh, his talking. But this lady's not having it. She heckles the hell out of him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, basically, our paleontologist, uh, Dr. Yamane, um, actually, this was a connection to uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters. So that would be the, the most recent uh, American Godzilla movie. This was one that I completely forgot about. That was kind of, it, it put a smile on my face because this is a deep cut. Um, so Dr. Yamane actually mentions uh, Hollow Earth, <laughs> um, which is set to play a big role in the current Godzilla franchise. Um, that's where Godzilla, like, that's how they explain how Godzilla, um, Michael Myers, his way around the Earth. <laughs> yeah. Where it's like, dude, I only see him walk. How does he keep beating me from place to place? It's like, oh, well, the Earth is hollow, and he essentially like takes boom tubes from place to place. It's like Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he actually does mention like there are hollows in the Earth that we haven't explored at the deepest depths of the ocean. Um, perhaps there's some creature that we're not aware of that caused these problems on Odo Island. But uh, we gather together an expedition including uh dr yamane and his daughter and uh ogata who is just he's he's a he's a himbo he's he's a male bimbo <laughs> he's a mimbo so is he in the military or not or is this a different guy i uh, i thought he worked for like a salvage yard or something like he worked for a salvage office of some sort but uh he's also seemingly involved with the coast guard or the or the navy in some regard i don't quite like, know what his job is it's like that twerp from to the 2014 godzilla how he's like oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah he's like now i'm jumping out of a plane like wait what like those so are you're a, you're a demolitions expert you're an infantryman correct yes yes but you I, all, you're also clean you're, you're also trained at at halo drops yeah you're also <laughs> like jumping from almost outer space from a helicopter and yeah. and, and you're also familiar with antiquated nuclear devices yeah <laughs> he's kind of wearing a lot of hats in that movie uh, uh yeah it that's a little bonkers um. yeah. that's the all he that movie would have been so much better if they just didn't have him in it and then also dial that character down a little bit that yeah, actor I, yeah yeah we we got into it on that episode i i i'll leave it at that but yeah. yeah you're right you're right but um 
anyway we we're going we to check out together. the village yeah yeah we go to the village and this is where we get our traditional um b-movie business of investigating yeah uh, the attack scene after the fact and this is the kind of stuff i i eat this shit up i love this this oh, is really? this is like godzilla 98 where you know everything before the monsters great. yes but it's yeah, not the, the build-up you know it's not as much fun in this movie unfortunately uh, I, I needed more of it. There's no fish. Like, the villagers are, like, out there fishing. And like, we got empty nets, bro. It's Forrest Gump before the hurricane, you know? They got nothing. But, yeah. yeah we, we couldn't really afford to put a, a, a scarred-up tuna ship yeah, on the shoreline or I something know. like that. I mean, you could, you actually could render that with good miniature effects and stuff. And this yeah. movie actually did have a fairly decent budget for its day. Um, but you need to remember, this was 1954, and this format, this formula wasn't exactly worn out yet especially in japan like maybe here in the states we're starting to get a little overly familiar but you know this is a pioneering effort uh, for japanese cinema yeah. but i'm not yeah, we're, i'm not knocking it i'm just saying like i wish they did a little bit more of the building up it would have been nice yeah because godzilla does actually show up very <laughs> yeah, soon <he> does. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we investigate uh, some craters in the ground, and there's some decent uh, mat shots here. Uh, very few, but they're uh, they're very selectively positioned in the film. Where, very subtle. Yeah, very subtle and v- almost seamless. Yeah, uh, you you really can't spot them. It's kind of cool. There's you almost have to be you have to almost be looking for them to, to even. I think them. you actually do because they do fit in very nicely. In fact, there was one that I wouldn't have noticed if it was if it wasn't on a Criterion Blu-ray, you know, yeah. day. I did a double um, take on one. Like, wait, that was a, that was a map painting. Damn. Usually you can, you can spot it and spot them out. Yeah. And what's kind of remarkable is that, you know, compositing and mat shots and stuff that, you know, I don't remember exactly what year attack of the 50 foot woman come, came out. <laughs> but if you look at the effects work in that movie, as compared to some other stuff using the same technology, the same techniques, holy fucking shit. There, you can tell, which one is doing it right and mm-hmm. it's certainly not attack of the 50 foot woman <laughs> um because that woman is semi-transparent throughout the entire film <laughs> and i assure you that was not what they intended um that is doing it wrong but um yeah one of the mat shots in here is just used to expand the destruction of the village just a little bit just to make it look more damaged than it actually was and then uh, we step into some craters and we discover, oh shit, these are footprints, uh, very similar to Godzilla '98. And then uh, Dr. Yamane finds a uh, trilobite uh, in one of the footprints. And he, <laughs> uh, what's really interesting here is that um, everybody's scrambling around with Geiger counters, mm-hmm. and you can hear that crackling noise. That as a kid, I think I had to have like my dad explain to me what what is that? Like yeah. what's that noise? What is all that? But they don't really get into it too much it's just understood you know fucking figure it out but um dr yamane again paleontologist giddy is a schoolboy he just grabs this thing with his bare fucking hands yeah so you probably uh, shouldn't be touching that with your bare hands professor he's like oh yeah one of one of his aides comes up with the geiger counter and it's just like spiking like fucking mad and he's like uh might want to wear some gloves (laughs) and then they keep having to yell at all the villagers like dude not safe get out Oh yeah, don't use this well for a while is how they phrase it. It's like you mean ever? Yeah, <laughs> <It's> like... ever. <laughs> um, but one thing that they do point out is that the radiation is localized, so it's not like the entire water supply is radi- radiated. It's just on the footprints, this... and yeah, yeah. So it's just whatever was here, whatever it touched is no bueno right now. Um, and Kyle, uh, 
a villager starts banging on a gong up in a tower. So I don't know if this was for just like general security or air raids or what have you, but he's calling an alert to the whole village and they scramble up to the mountains <laughs> for, for some reason. And we start hearing that thump, that, that stomping noise Boom. from the opening titles. And yeah. Kyle, you were very excited to get into this, so I'll, I'll let you explain what happens here. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I kind of forgot that this is how Godzilla doesn't, he doesn't make his entrance here. We just get a little tease, which is strange that we get a tease of his face. You would think it would just be like a tail, like him just going into the water and you just see a tail kind of like go underneath. Like that, that's what I could imagine. No, in this case, the villagers look up and they hear him coming and they look up over a mountain and his head just kind of kind of pops up over the top of the mountain just a little bit. And his eyes not moving. <laughs> it's, it's, re- it's really funny to see. Because usually your your monster reveals like a big deal. And I kind of have to... Roland Emmerich, did he do the 98 version of Godzilla? I'm like, if he was kind of following this pattern, it's like a goofy entrance. I, he did do that. <laughs> that's That's kind of what happened in that movie. Yeah, it's actually kind of fascinating how similar this is to like King Kong, where Kong just shows up and yeah, also has a derpy expression on his yeah. face. <laughs> like Kong, Kong's reveal in that movie, he just arrives. Like the, he doesn't have a special camera angle or anything. He's just in. He's just standing there in the frame. We didn't. We didn't know how to just do a little foreplay back then. We were just jam it in and get it done. Uh, now, now we we know how to ease in. Yeah, no, you, you got to ease into the hot tub, man. That's how you get the most out of it. But, yeah, um, yeah he does just kind of, like, rear up. And he's he's got the Kermit <laughs> the Frog eyes where one, one – he's got the Wally eye where one's looking at you and the other one's looking the somewhere else. Molly, moly, moly. But, yeah, he, uh, he lets out one of his trademark bellows. And, like, everybody who is now at the top of the mountain turns tail and starts running down the mountain – um, and he gives a couple of roars here, and I think the worst angle we get of him, and mind you, this is in broad fucking daylight, um, so it, not flattering yeah. to, to, this is a hand puppet, by the way, this version of, of the suit that we're okay. looking at, um, which, <laughs> which is the glamour one, like, the head sculpt on the puppet, if you ask me, was superior to the, like, the full body suit, mm-hmm. so this is the best it's gonna fucking look in broad daylight, <laughs> this is the best we got, um, yeah. um, but the worst angle is when he, he looks head head on into the camera, and he goes, ah, yeah, <laughs> and he, like, puts one hand up, just like, hi, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's kind of crazy that Godzilla caught on, <laughs> based on this it's just kind of funny to see like how far we've come and how oh man i can see the rage uh it's all right it it, it, it's not bad i can it's just barely picking up uh but yeah it's kind of funny that this is where it started like this is where godzilla started was a dude in a suit yeah no it humble beginnings and in a lot of ways it's like just the general tone of this movie wouldn't have you believe that this was the beginning of a franchise like it's a fairly dark and moody movie for the most part um there is sequel bait at the very end of it but it like overall the package is like we want more of this are you sure about that (laughs) um so yeah god godzilla has his grand well not so spectacular reveal but uh, it's the 1950s so of course emiko uh yamane's daughter uh trips and falls and we get she gets a good scream in there and uh 
her himbo has to protect her from nothing. Like Godzilla actually just boogies. Yeah, what are you gonna leaves. do, bro? You might yeah, as well. What, what? <laughs> you might as well be one of the dudes with a katana. Like, what the fuck are you gonna do with that? <laughs> yeah, Kyle pointed that out. That uh, after Godzilla leaves, and I think the timing of them showing up with these katanas is appropriate because it's after the big lizard has left. Yeah. Like after the threats diminished. Now you roll up, huh? Now you're all aggro. I was <laughs> gonna do something. Left. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna do something. Yeah, sit um, down. But yeah, uh, Godzilla actually just turns tails and he turns tail and leaves. Yeah. Uh, he heads out to sea, and we get this really cool shot looking down at the beach. Um, Great attention to detail. Uh, yeah. I don't. I'm assuming because of the way the suit was, they thought of this. You've got footprints, but you also have his tail dragging in between. Yeah. And as far as I could tell, this is all pretty much just a painting. Yeah. Um, and or maybe maybe something superimposed, like a matte painting on top of an actual view of a beach. But yeah, we just see gigantic footprints headed towards the ocean, and uh, he just left. Yeah. And all the villagers are looking down. They're like, "Oh, I don't want to tangle with that." But uh, we go back to Tokyo, and uh, Dr. Yamane gives a presentation. Uh, he brought a slideshow. Yes, he did. Uh, of all of his dinosaur action figures in his backyard. Uh, <laughs> these are all like painted, painted renderings of dinosaurs that he's showing off to the Japanese government officials and whatnot. Well, he's talking about uh, how this, uh, uh, the, what was the thing he found? What's it called? Trilobite. Trilobite. This thing he found, he's like, this is from like the Jurassic period or something. Like This has been what we thought was extinct for years. And, we have this thing, and the, the ocean is super deep, and we really don't understand how deep it is. I'm like, he's actually right, but I don't think w- even then they understood exactly how vast the ocean was. Well, when in my day, Kyle, dinosaurs were 65 million years ago. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the first big red flag. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this this whole big PowerPoint presentation that he gives to the Japanese government um along with a photo which is represented by a painting by the way because uh, the way that we did that reveal of godzilla is a matte shot mm-hmm. of of like ha- the top half of the frame is you know hand puppet with a little bit of like fake bushes and stuff at the very base of that frame and then like uh, a live action plate yeah. of an actual mountainside so i don't know if there was a good way to photograph that so they just hand painted a rendering of godzilla peering over the mountain that uh, dr yamane took in the moment uh, so he shows that to everyone saying like hey this shit's legit everything <laughs> <laughs> when you say it like that it's kind of funny because i was thinking i'm like is that supposed to be a photograph of him because there's definitely a guy with a camera so they kind of tell you like this photo was taken but you're looking at it like i don't think that photo was taken there <laughs> <laughs> you just have one guy in the front row with his finger up like yeah. <laughs> just yeah that would have been <laughs> <laughs> just cut to him real quick just cut it yeah uh, that was it yeah <laughs> um but yeah it would have been his whole it would have been perfect if it was leslie nielsen it just yeah. one, one american dude it was just him yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but this whole presentation is about uh, again like the depths of the earth and how there are hollow pockets that we can't possibly have ex- explored yet and uh him finding a trilobite in this thing's footprint suggests that it's from a different time like it's from the deep distant past because trilobites have been extinct for millions of years um science bullshit aside yeah. 
Um, one detail that I, I overlooked um, that I, I actually kind of had to humble myself a little bit and be like, oh, I guess I don't know everything about Godzilla, is that I don't think there is any explicit reference uh, in this film um, to Godzilla being a product of, of radioactive bomb testing. No, it's actually he was... He was supposed to be laying dormant, and the bomb, yes. bombing actually woke him up. Yes, um, which uh, I, pers- I personally, I prefer other iterations of the, of the origin. Um, like the atomic, in, like the the nuclear testing causing. Uh, in the nineties, it it became this idea that there was somehow a di- a dinosaur that somehow survived to modern times, or at least like the nineteen forties, and then it was struck by an H bomb, and it mutated. Um, I always preferred that narrative, but I guess the original origin was no, he was awakened, and but he was somehow uh, sturdy enough to withstand the the impact of an H bomb, which. Um, I, I was wrong when we talked about Godzilla 2014. That does make the origin for that version of, of the character, you know, s- like, fit this version, of the you, original version. What do you think works better for Parable? Like, if you think about nuclear testing as waking up something, some kind of ferocious monster that can cause damage, or this nuclear testing has... Uh, can have negative effects on something causing... It I've to always mutate. preferred the latter. Okay. I've always that's the narrative I've always carried in the, in my head about the origin of, of Godzilla was that he, he we made him and he's this eternal mistake that we can never be free of. He's he's now a, he's now a walking natural disaster that we have no means of getting. It's like a half life for radioactive waste. It's like what do you do about it? If you put it in a vault and hope it goes away millions of years from now or whatever, or even just developing atomic uh, energy just in general yeah yeah Yeah. i always preferred that where it's like i like the idea of us being responsible for making him and having to just pay the price of having of having to coexist with him i concur yeah um but it surprisingly enough i i forgot that about about this version of the character so that that's on me for forgetting that this there is a ton of godzilla movies so it's understandable that you would forget at least well, yeah, it, it, it all gets muddled and, and it has undergone changes over the years. But yeah, the original version is no, we woke him up with H-bombs um, and somehow he was able to survive the explosion. And uh, actually, there's a production note about how they designed his look was um, he was meant to look like like a burn victim or something like that's why he's his original color scheme. Um, this is a black and white film, but. Uh, originally he was intended to be like charcoal gray Um, a lot of art like promotional art especially in america always drew him as being green Um, he would eventually become that sometimes but in this version he was always supposed to be charcoal gray and the reason for that was supposed to be he he's a burn victim (laughs) and even Ah. even like the even like the crusty like scaling he has on his skin it's meant to reflect that um don't exactly know how he's able to breathe fucking fire that's (laughs) That's not don't worry about but (laughs) that's actually part of that's actually part of why i always you know assumed that it was because he was empowered by the nuclear energy or something in some way but um yeah this scene (laughs) that would make more sense yes this scene does end with uh what kyle had mentioned earlier with uh a public he's a he's a very uh, image-centric public official he's like you know 
I don't think it's a good idea to tell all the, you know, the Japanese, these folks, these yeah. Japanese folks, uh, about this uh, atomic lizard. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't seem like a good idea. You it's probably going to cause panic. You sound like Obama. I started to realize it mid-sentence, so I was just, I was just go, going just with try, it. Yeah, just step on the gas. It was like, that's and definitely like, his yeah. cadence. He's like, yep, yeah, we're going to take care of these folks, uh, make sure it doesn't cause a panic. Uh, but uh, then there's a, a woman who I think is meant to represent like the unsilent majority. So she like even her accent, like her Japanese accent, reflects like oh she's from the boonies. <laughs> like, <laughs> she just starts like cussing him out in front of everybody. And this is where he has his good shut up, shut up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mid sentence. I mean, it's she is great. pretty ratchety. So you're just like, can you just stop, please? Oh yeah, she doesn't even get up either. She got the she got her Sunday best on with the mm-hmm. cocked hat, and she's just like gesticulating. She doesn't even stand up. And uh, what's funny is she she gets her wish. Um, they do like I think the very next scene is we get like press releases like, oh Godzilla's a thing. Be be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we get to see uh, another staple of a uh, just I don't know Japanese filmmaking, Japanese storytelling, just uh, jargon. And uh, mass groups of people working in concert, like like just communal effort. Like, yeah, they're they're very big on that, <laughs> and we'll get to that like more so with um, the 2016 film Shin Gojira. Um, but yeah, uh, we we get a whole bunch of like radio and television events here where basically everybody's being made aware that there's a giant fucking reptile out there that is a danger to the public, um, and they the navy asserts that they're going to get rid of him with death charges yeah uh, okay uh good luck finding him it you know it's called an ocean yeah <laughs> <laughs> or you know sea of japan i guess but yeah it, it's kind of hard to find things out there but um we get some brewing melodrama in the form of a uh, the yamane household is kind of split on their feelings about godzilla uh, where Dr. Yamane wants to study the thing. He's like, why do we got to kill it? It's like, dude, we don't even know if we can yet. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, dude. This isn't uh, this isn't like an alien life form that's mammalian in, in how it's presented and like the same size as us. This is a monster the size of a skyscraper. I think we need to put it down because he's going to keep damaging stuff. Yeah, I, I always thought it was kind of neat that... Uh, I mean, obviously he's had character transposed onto him in re- more recent years, but in his original iteration, I always thought it was perfect that Godzilla was reptilian because because of what he represents. Like he he's just this un- irresistible force that it, he he has no will, he has no conscience really. He just does. Yeah. And how fitting that it would be a, a reptile that you know cold blooded not not known to be especially protective or, or emotional uh, except for like you know alligators and crocodiles with like very tiny babies but even then like the survival rate on those things is like one percent or yeah. something uh, so not the best parents but i guess there were plans originally to have him be more like gorilla like and it's like no like no. like i don't i don't want to see myself in this thing that's meant to symbolize you know just mass destruction yeah in this version of the character i don't i don't want to form that particular emotional bond i don't you mean that reptilian stupidity where it's just like i have no conscience it's just eat eat and poop yeah well yeah and they you know the 
even the facial structure on a reptile they have you know those beady unfeeling eyes where it's like a komodo dragon can be you know death rolling you all over the place and tearing your leg off and just has that same derpy look yeah like it, it's like a quint his description of a shark where yeah. it's like as doll's eyes like it doesn't it's even soulless. seem like it's alive until it's on you <laughs> um as opposed to like a mammal or something they're very much more expressive yeah they, you know just bigger more more easily understood expressions of feeling and emotion but good call on the on the production here but yeah the yamane household is split because uh, the elder he's like wanting to study the creature and Olgata, uh, the himbo, uh, he's like, dude, we got bombs. We should use yeah. them. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of neat. We had a, we had a like a, just an extras moment where after the initial press release about the monster, um, we just have a scene on like a subway of some like a young couple on a train. Yeah, I thought that was weird. I I was feeling racist because I'm like, that doesn't look like them. Like it doesn't look like our main two. Like, it wasn't them. Because it wasn't them. I'm like, <laughs> I don't think that's them. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not them. But, like, this isn't your... Maybe it's just in older movies. Like, when you have main characters, you really develop them longer. Like, th- something we kind of glossed over with this movie is, like, this this first 20 minutes is, like, would take, like, an hour in, in like, a contemporary film. Like, it would take a long time to really draw this out. We did to introduced to our characters really let the monster fester we bust through that in the beginning oh yeah no we would have lots of backstories and uh quirks like i i sorry to bring it back to dante's peak again but you know in that movie the first thing we get is backstory for pierce brosnan uh then we get introduced to linda hamilton we get to see her like stressed out living scenario and stuff like you get all these layers uh to assist in like building drama later on this one like i said i think it's very fitting that the director is mostly a documentarian coming into this because he doesn't seem especially concerned with your typical melodrama at least in the first half anyway he he just has like a cast of thousands and it seems like he's more concerned with expressing like different departments yeah Um, yeah like like we have different angles yeah we have the we have the reporters we have uh, the radio dispatch we have the island residents um, then we have the politicians, and then after all of that, it's like, oh, now that we have all, all the players introduced, now we can start focusing on like the characters a little bit, um, yeah. just in time for things to start going boom. Um, but yeah, we meet this young couple on a train, and uh, they're they have some choice dialogue here that was cut from the American version of the film, where it's small, like it almost reads as innocuous until you put it in historical context where they, they read the newspaper headlines saying, oh, possibility of evacuation and stuff. And the one guy's like, oh, this shit again? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's, but then you put it in context. It's like, oh, 1954. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. And he's a young man, so he was alive and like had to deal with that because, you know, not sure if everybody listening is aware, but, you know, during World War II, it wasn't just two atom bombs that were dropped on Japan. It was bombing of pretty much every populated city in, in the country for a few years uh so air raids were were a thing that people of a certain age these characters included these young characters included would have been familiar with yeah 1939 uh, to 44 was not a great time in a, in world history 
Yeah, no, there's there's <laughs> there's a lot of beefs that <laughs> li- li- likely never will be quashed <laughs> that were formulated around that time. Maybe period. not for a while. Yeah. yeah, maybe not for a minute. Uh, <laughs> maybe. We, do we get to our Cyclops meeting? Because he, uh, it's so strange the way he's introduced in the film. Uh, he like sees them off. And yeah. Yeah. He. And what's with the the ribbon? Like the the weird line of string that everybody had. So that was when the the Odo Island expedition was put together. Yeah. So when Dr. Yamane and his daughter go off to the island, um, Dr. Serizawa, uh, who I believe uh, Ken Watanabe's character in Godzilla 2014 is meant to be related I, to. I had a feeling. They have the same surname, so you would assume. But he seemed because he well, Ken Watanabe kind of seemed it seemed like a mixture of the professor and the Cyclops guy. Very much so. Very much so. He's he's a, he's an odd character. I'll just leave he doesn't. He's just fucking horny for Godzilla in that movie. Yeah, we'll, go back and listen to that. We talk about it there. Let them fight. <laughs> it's creepy. Um, yeah, uh, and he has a psychic connection with the monster. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little weird. He speaks for all of the Japanese who couldn't be allowed to be in this film. <laughs> we do. We only need one. One guy. <laughs> like, one Japanese. We only guy. need one. <laughs> we have Brian Cranston. We don't need a whole bunch of Japanese people. Just there's a lot of countries that'll object to more than one of them being in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and we want we this to make do our budget back. <laughs> we want this to do well in those countries. <laughs> those countries. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, Doctor Serizawa. Uh, he is introduced to us in a very odd fashion. Where yeah, he does see them off, and he's wearing sunglasses on top of his eye patch. It's yeah, if. If you weren't paying attention, it's like literally like a second on screen. You just see him real quick, and then like you wouldn't even notice that he has the eye patch. I don't think I noticed it the first time. Well, yeah, he's got a hat on. He's got sunglasses and an eye patch. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a lot. But um, he gets introduced to us properly very shortly after this because um, the couple from the train uh, they 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 go a dancing. They have a sock hop on a uh, on a like a cruise liner or something. Yeah. And Godzilla just kind of pops up. He does that from time to time in this yeah, movie. Yeah, he does. Where he just kind of like pops up out of the water, and then he's like, "I'll kill you later." So, <laughs> yeah. Is that is that the guy in the suit doing it? Yeah. Th- That's not like I actually really like the. I like shipwreck movies. I like uh, where shipwrecks happen because it's fucking terrifying. That's like the most terrifying thing I could think of is being a, a, like stranded at sea. So, have you seen the Poseidon Adventure? I have not. Oh, f- I was I was not aware that uh, shipwrecks and stuff were a thing for you. You got to see the Poseidon Adventure. Oh, really? Holy shit! Yeah, it's that's like that's like the shipwreck movie. Oh, I love shipwreck. It's, it's about a cruise liner that gets turned upside down. Oh, that sounds like fun. It gets hit by a tidal wave and it flips upside down, and they have to escape. It's great, kind- and they remade it with Kurt Russell. <laughs> kind of. It's also kind of why I love The Abyss because that's kind of along those lines. Um, but I was really terrified. I'm like, is that dude in a suit in water? I'm like, that 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 alone scared me because I'd be nervous in that suit in water. I'd be I'd be afraid of drowning. Um, he just kind of does a flyby uh, yeah. via the water on these people. He doesn't yeah. kill them, uh, yeah. but um, it spurs the Japanese government to be like, hey, we gotta like steal ourselves and get ready for some shit because yeah. we got a big old lizard in our pond. Um, and meanwhile, uh, one of our reporters who's been with us the entire film, he's hes almost a main character, in fact. Uh, Hagiwara is his name. Uh, he 
uh, goes to visit Dr. Serizawa, uh, who is engaged uh, to Emiko. Um, meanwhile, every scene we have had with her, she's had this himbo just like kind of floating around her. <laughs> and uh, they've had a lot of dialogue sprinkled about suggesting that they're, they are together, but they're not really like making it official. And the reason for this is that I, I want to say that she was uh, put in an arranged marriage. Ah, um, yeah. that makes more sense now. But she developed feelings for someone else. This very handsome man Honk, who yeah. doesn't, who has both eyes. He he does have deaf perception. That he's, is a plus. He's like Japanese James Dean. Yeah, no, I mean he's, uh, he's yeah, he, he's a very handsome man. He doesn't have a whole lot to do in this movie though. That's why I've been calling him the himbo. But yeah. um, they this the entire movie is is them trying to find the right time to tell this poor one-eyed man that, <laughs> that I've been banging your fiance. <laughs> <laughs> and they never really find the right time. And when they finally do, it ends up with some fireworks. But I mean, my man is straight Slytherin down in the in the basement. I can see why she's like, you know, what? I want to go with this normal dude. Yeah, and she mentions also knowing him like in childhood and thinking of him as a big brother. So it's like that's not what you want when you're putting him on someone. <laughs> no, like, no. no that's that's not what you want for a relationship. No. But, um, but anyway, he's he's notorious apparently for being a scientist who is very elusive. He's difficult to get a hold of, and he's also not a good interview. So this reporter uh, approaches Emiko, saying like, "Hey, I've been trying to get a hold of this guy. He's apparently doing research that could be relevant to you know." the current situation with the big old lizard um and she's like oh i'll help you out and, and maybe i'll you know to kill two birds with one stone um by dropping the bomb on him at the same time uh so she goes with him and uh sure enough they they go to the doctor's residence uh it, definitely inspired by uh like the universal horror films um uh, it, yes. like this yeah, yeah. His his home is not a traditional Japanese home. Uh, there's a lot of stonework. Um, he ha- he has a creepy lab basement, um, very much like a Doctor Frankenstein Frankenstein type situation. Um, and the eye patch and the lab coat certainly lend to that as well. Uh, no hunchback, but uh, he does have questionable posture. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he does turn this reporter away, and uh, he sticks around with Emiko though, and like he cuts her off mid sentence when she's getting ready to tell him. And he's like, I got something to show you. <laughs> Why don't you come down to my basement? Yeah, come on down to the basement. Yeah, come on down to the creepy basement. <laughs> yeah, it, I definitely was getting a little bit like Dr. Frankenstein. Uh, but there's way more, way more tubes and uh, stuff going on in this basement. Yeah, less electrical equipment, more tubes. Yeah. Uh, more glassware. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but I did notice, and it looks funny when you first see it, but it, it there's a reason why it's there. Um, he has, like, a little corner, like, in, in the basement, which is set up like a creepy lab. He just has this little corner with a couple of really cozy chairs. Yeah, I noticed the chairs, a, too. With, with a really cool bookshelf and a little TV. Yeah, I noticed that, too. So his his creepy lab doubles as a man cave. <laughs> I think he's spending most of his time down there. You know, if we if they had a Famicom or a Nintendo at the time... He would have one. <laughs> He'd have a Nintendo Switch down there, yeah. Yeah, no, he he would be playing his Switch on the toilet. <laughs> like, he spends a lot of time down here. <laughs> um, but, the, like I said, that all those details seem silly when you first see them, but they're actually 
are relevant later. But anyway, uh, the, the centerpiece of this lab setup is a giant fish tank. And here we get uh, the initial reveal of a plot device that will be very important later in the film. Uh, basically, he has this little, it's like a, it's like a dog dish almost, yeah. that he pulls from a cabinet, and he throws this little ball of something in with the fish. And we get some really cool Dutch angles here. Like, I love the close-up of uh, the two of them watching what happens in the tank. Uh, her reaction is, you know, typical 1950s damsel in distress stuff. But the slight tilt to the angle and, like, the kind of soft focus they put on both of them looks really good. This movie is very well shot. Oof. Um, uh, and, and the editing is very brisk. Um, it There are certain instances where there's whole scenes that don't need to be here, but... Uh, the length of the average scene in this movie is surprisingly short for a 50s movie. Like, it, it kind of, like, we jump from location to location and conversation to conversation pretty rapidly. It's kind of surprising, actually. Yeah, it does move pretty quickly. Um, um, but anyway, we don't actually see what happens in the tank, but we it was apparently shocking enough that yeah. she had to scream and, and recoil in terror, and when she goes home right afterwards, she is not in a talking mood. Yeah, she walks um, in and just walks right back out. I like a uh, uh, handsome guy. He sits down, and he like acts like he's reading when she's in the other room. He's just kind of getting ready to turn the page, and uh, yeah, he's not actually reading. But then she just like leaves. <laughs> Yeah, uh, she does come back with drinks later, which I want to say is a very Japanese move where it's like, <laughs> it's like I just need a minute to collect myself and then I'm going to like come back stronger than ever. This, <laughs> like I'm going to I'm going to put on a happy face for the whole room. This might have been a cultural thing, but I noticed that she kind of caters to her dad. Like she kind of like very walks, much so. Well, very she kind of so. like like uh, squats down or bows to get his his bag and then she kind of presents him with drinks and he asks where she is at one point but yeah it, i guess it was kind and of he she takes his jacket off without him even looking at her <laughs> uh that's yeah. that's what secretaries did in the 60s apparently too <laughs> like can you not yeah. take your own jacket off dude just walk in there and take it off yeah no it was it very much a cultural thing um there actually were japanese directors like in the 50s and the 60s that really spotlighted uh actresses and and female stories um not this one though <laughs> uh this this movie the the ladies have no agency whatsoever they're just kind of here um although it does need to be said uh, the resolution of this story does hinge on her actions kind of kind of almost <laughs> so Dude, i'm trying to give her credit but i got so excited and kind of scared when the sirens go off like in a movie when there's sirens going off you're like oh this is where it's about to happen this is exciting but I was also thinking back to, uh, oh, what was that video game movie we did? Uh, oh, Silent Hill. Silent Hill, yeah. Cause it, and that, for some reason, that kind of popped in my head, too. I'm like, oh, it's a scary part. I'm like, it's Godzilla. It's not that. It's going to be that, that scary. <laughs> well, speaking of which, uh, we do get some air raid sirens uh, in the middle of this awkward evening conversation. Good timing, Godzilla. Perfect. <laughs> I, this is actually where I was just like, oh, my God, can we get to... And then the sirens went off. Like, oh, here we go. Fuck yeah. Yeah, so curiously enough, uh, Godzilla's Godzilla making landfall. So Godzilla actually showed up, like barely 20 minutes into the movie like we saw his head like barely 20 minutes into the movie but him making landfall is almost identical like in terms of time code as king kong it's about 45 minutes yeah just about that it's kind of it's kind of neat how that worked out but um yeah uh, the air raid sirens go off and all the men of the household take off to 
do God knows what. There's really nothing to be done other than uh, get to an elevated position and watch your countrymen get trampled. <laughs> yeah, I like your best best bet is to go out to the wide, like away from t- buildings and stuff that can fall on you. That's your best bet. Yeah, they just go up on a grassy hill and and watch. And uh, Godzilla arrives in the bay and they try to stop him with machine guns. Yeah, dude, that's not gonna work. <laughs> It's like, have you seen the size of this thing? <laughs> um, but yeah, he, uh, curiously enough, very similar to how he has his initial reveal with his face, um, he just kind of appears on land. So there's no shot of him getting up out of the water. And I want to say that was probably a logistical thing uh, because uh, the suit, the full body suit for this thing, which you would probably have to have him wear, uh, the suit actor that is, um, for a shot of him coming up out of the water, one it probably looks like dog shit when it's coming out of the water yeah because uh, it's waterlogged and it's not built to hold its structure and stuff so he'd look all bloated in parts like when when uh, an air pocket gets into your swim trunks he'd look like that and you don't want that <laughs> yeah there are certain times when he's walking around it just occasionally you'll see the suit because like you said it's not meant to like stay sticking out like it'll it's like a toy almost where it just like it'll squeeze yeah yeah um the other thing is that the, this the full suit weighed over 200 pounds holy shit yeah so getting like just stepping up out of the water probably was asking too much that's how you die <laughs> the- uh, well i mean i don't know if you've ever seen what the fellow who wore the suit looked like he was a very small man but apparently he was ver- he was like fisherman strong like, gotcha real strong real tiny but um this this hero uh, his name is haruo nakajima um, my dad texted me when he died <laughs> because he knew I would care. <laughs> um, but uh, curiously enough, uh, very similar to like uh, Paul Revere. Um, uh, do you know the story of uh, Paul Revere's Midnight Ride? Is he the one the the British are coming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the I had to do a school report on him way back in the day, and and I always thought it was fascinating that uh, history remembers that anecdote, but in actuality, he got captured. <laughs> Uh, uh, I think Samuel Prescott actually finished the ride on his behalf. And similar uh, to that, uh, history remembers Haruo Nakajima as the the original Godzilla suit actor, but there was also an assistant named uh, Katsumi Tezuka who also wore the suit uh, for some insert shots here and there. So, okay, he is just adorable. He's just an adorable he, he old is a, man. He is the kindest looking old man. Like He, yeah. he reminds me of some of my relatives. He, he has like he just has such a happy yeah, look about he, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And seeing him do the Godzilla walk when he's not wearing the suit, because people would always ask him to do oh, that. Oh, really? He would he would demonstrate his acting process without <laughs> wearing the suit. It's so charming. He he was always he always had a smile and a story for everybody. He was a great guy. Yeah, he seemed like he looks like a looks like a sweet guy. Um, but yeah, uh, apparently he passed out several times in the suit. Um, <laughs> of course and, he did. Uh, I think the first time he wore it, he fell over and needed assistance to get up. He, he literally fell and could not get up. And he could only wear the thing for like three minutes at a time before uh, the heat and the lack of oxygen would get to him. I can see and that. He, he did this over and over and over again for years. I, the, the constitution on this man... Uh, truly truly impressive stuff uh you had you had to be a tough guy to do that i wonder if he got paid decent i hope he did i really hope he did because he deserved it yeah. uh, because um it's not as apparent in this film but in many of the other godzilla films where he portrayed the character i don't think it was until the 
80s that he stopped doing the gig because ah. um, he got you know old and beat up um he really his physicality he actually did have a way of moving that it's kind of like uh jason Voorhees. like there's a reason why kane hodder is the, is the top pick for like that's jason like all those other stuntmen uh all those dick warlock types i don't think dick warlock ever played jason but kane hodder was the one who really put his stamp on the, like the body language and the way he carried himself and stuff and same same with this era of the franchise it's like if you had a different guy in the suit you probably could tell he's very um, he's very bow-legged too i noticed that yeah 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 he's, he's very bow-legged very bow-legged <laughs> um but yeah godzilla makes landfall and uh the black and white photography is fantastic here godzilla is cast in heavy shadows um highlights on like his dorsal spines and stuff but for the most part he's just like washed in blacks and there's a lot of composite shots here that again uh when compared to something like attack of the 50-foot woman or something doesn't hold a candle uh some of these composite shots look tremendous and a lot of it does have to do with the fact that they're using heavy shadows and the the seams between the like the plate shots and the mats um are virtually imperceptible um but he he goes walking through like the shipyard and the big highlight here is probably in an homage to king kong uh he gets on the train tracks and uh, he steps like the timing of this hit is beautiful because like there's this train barreling down the tracks and his foot comes down the second it gets to him yeah and oh watching this train derail and like you know the conductor hit the brake at the last second and just the chaos that unfolds it's it's really really impactful stuff and um a big difference between the american cut and the japanese cut of this film is um japanese cuts more brutal um, there's a there's a handful of shots here and there uh, that are longer and have more detail in regards to um, the actual impact uh, of of the destruction. So during this train wreck sequence, the American version just shows like him hurling toy train cars around and stuff. You know, fun stuff. Yeah, we don't um, want we don't want another King Kong uh, fiasco where we're <laughs> showing some <laughs> brutal ass shit. Yeah, we don't want to drop any women from extreme heights or, you know, uh, put any fangs in a tribesman's assholes. Um, but um, the Japanese cut has, like, inserted, well, not inserted, but included in the sequence, like, lots of shots of people with, like, head wounds, like, hiding under rubble and just being in awe of what's happening. So we actually get to see, like, the real human impact of, of not just, like, the property damage, but, like, yeah, people are there, and they're hurt, and they're scared. Yeah, we wouldn't want American audiences to get an idea of what, you know, what we were doing to other countries at the time. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's why this film is, is so historically significant, is that it does explore a lot of the territory that B-movies in, in the States and most other movies of this nature, any monster movie, really wasn't wasn't terribly confident with tackling it's like that's yeah. punching above our weight like you know I, I i made this movie on a weekend on a roger corman budget on a bet mind you we're not we're not really trying to tell any we're not trying to tell anyone anything with this movie this movie i had an agenda and it really does effectively get its point across if you ask me i wonder what the hell i mean it would be different but how much different the american film industry would be if we kept with god with uh, king kong with that kind of violence in movies early on and hadn't been censored um 
be that's very a very good question because that was a very long stretch of time and i mean we were in the middle of world war ii for a good chunk of that um but in the but 50s we were just not it was all uh it was all just g stuff pg well we we, we talked about before with king kong we're in you know in the 50s we're casually eating hamburgers yeah. and hot dogs not thinking about where it's coming from and stuff whereas f- roll it back 20 years it's like meat that shit's hard to come by yeah man. <laughs> <laughs> america's great we got all this meat and stuff it's just right here it's super super great it's not meat <laughs> <laughs> yeah for real uh i guess um, this this would probably be a good time to discuss uh like the because this whole scene if you've never seen godzilla it's all miniatures. We have a guy in a suit uh, stomping around miniatures, and it's it's spectacular. Like it, you can't really do it justice without seeing it. Like it, it's really incredible to see. But it's interesting that this is the way that the Japanese decided to do a monster flick, whereas uh, how King Kong was, it was uh, stop motion. So we're, we're actually just uh, manually moving these things. You know, look bit by bit by bit and I, I i don't know how else to say what we would say like cgi but it's not cgi it's whatever it was at the time instead japanese are like we're just gonna put a dude in a suit and we're gonna do these immaculate models but how did they choose the scale I, like how did they go about it that way instead of copying what america did with king kong i have to assume it had to do with time uh because stop motion is incredibly time consuming well, I feel like building a model is just as time consuming. I, yeah, I mean, but you but you have a workshop that's that's working on all okay, of those yeah. models and stuff. Whereas Willis O'Brien is who did you it. had. Yeah, yeah, he the the guy did it, and <laughs> and it took months of his life to do some of those sequences and stuff. Um, whereas this, it's like you have live props that you can set up and destroy or rebuild, and then you can film everything live and on the spot. So I want to say that was probably. Um, the chief reason as to why they did that um i don't know if stop motion ever has really had much of a foothold in in japanese cinema but i don't think it has not that i i mean i don't i can't think of like early uh early stuff yeah i mean i I can certainly think of examples but none no like distinct periods or distinct creators like just a sprinkling here and there like in the 90s like stuff i was watching on vhs and stuff but uh yeah the suitmation technique was an interesting choice uh, i think it really worked out for them they basically created an art form yeah that, uh, like that that's Tsuburaya basically pioneered an entire special effect uh, special effects theory and art form unto itself and um yeah choosing the scale as far as i recall um uh, the reason they had godzilla be about i think he's supposed to be 50 meters in this film maybe 55 um was that it was slightly taller than the largest building in japan at the time okay or at least in tokyo anyway um and also uh, other important details of him breathing fire uh, not only is it cool <laughs> but uh, the other part of it was that um at this point in history uh, the majority of japanese buildings were constructed of wood mm. and would burn easily and of course coming hot off the heels of world war ii and all that ugliness a lot of bombs were dropped and the audience probably was familiar with some of this imagery of wood wood housing being set ablaze gotcha um but yeah the scale had to do with um having him be uh 
basically bigger than anything that he would be running across. And it's funny because they, they would continually make him larger um, as the series would go on until the 2000s where they shrunk him back down. Um, but I think he topped out in Japan anyway, in uh, like at about 100 meters, so like double the height. And it's so cool looking at Godzilla 1984 because the, the sets are the real star of the show in that one. Uh, because he's he's like 80 meters tall in that movie. And there's a sequence of him in 1984 Tokyo where the skyscrapers are way above him. Like, mm. like it's actual scale. Like they actually had to build props to suit that scale. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's no wonder they didn't really do that for many of those movies <laughs> going forward because that shit's hard to do. Yeah. But um, yeah, Godzilla's uh, initial uh, landfall results in him just like crashing through the shipyard and the railroad tracks. Uh, but then he just kind of quickly goes back into the bay, yeah. like gone as quickly as he appeared, um, which leaves us um, the populace kind of reeling and not sure what to do here. So this they scramble a- like the self-defense force. So we get to see again, uh, documentarian film at work. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we get to see like a whole bunch of military vehicles scrambling and stuff and uh, setting up artillery and whatnot. Um, but then the the plan at this point is to set up a electrical my like, god <laughs> <laughs> taxpayers dollars at work holy <laughs> shit this is dumb <laughs> this is a not not for the movie I'm just saying like this is a dumb move for the Japanese government like this is how we're gonna take care of this yeah sorry I interrupted you go ahead no I, I was about to say yeah I'm, I'm just thinking of the taxpayers and whatnot and you'd have like some fiscally conservative folks just being like uh-uh there's no <laughs> like, way this would get passed no not way. in my japan <laughs> no. godzilla would have if this happened in america godzilla would have already decimated 80 percent of the united states and there'd still be people like i don't think it's actually happening uh i i, I don't want to spend the money i don't want to spend the money for it i don't think it's really real well, keep that thought in the back of your mind when we get to Shin Godzilla. <laughs> okay. No, I'm serious. That The movie, I think, is officially classified, partially anyway, as a comedy. Oh, okay. And that's where a lot of the comedy comes from, uh, <laughs> is a political satire. I, I would actually be terrified if a Godzilla came to the U.S. right now, because I'm like, there's no way we would handle it the way that we need to. There's 0% chance we would handle it the way we need to. <laughs> uh uh, maybe someone would push the button yeah. finally. This like is a, some somebody's been itching to do it for decades. Would y'all just shut up? Okay, this is what's gonna happen. <laughs> shut up! Just shut <laughs> up! All right. <laughs> Seriously, um, but so there's two parts to this. So we have a big evacuation of about what fifteen hundred. There's a couple of miles away from these power lines. Like we have to evacuate the folks from there, uh-huh. and we have to do. The circumference of the island, <laughs> of all of Tokyo Bay, of all of Tokyo Bay. Look it up on a map. It's it's it's, it's not insubstantial. It's, <laughs> with these power lines, also like the way we 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 show the power. It took me a second. I'm like, wow, this looks really good. And then I I saw it just just shift yeah. slightly. I'm like, oh, that looks yeah. pretty good. Yeah, there's a couple of shots that look real good until it just jitters just yeah. that little bit. You were so close. <laughs> and they were so close. So close. Um, <laughs> but yeah, these power lines, I'm like, uh, guys, they, they hadn't seen Jurassic Park yet. So they, they didn't, this isn't going to work. Life uh, uh, finds a way. 
Well, I mean, I, they actually, because this is a Japanese film and because this is a documentary filmmaker, we do have some procedural elements because I, I don't know what it is about the Japanese psyche, but they, I, and I'm guilty of this too, man. <laughs> I'm not even from there. Like procedures are just, <clears throat> just eat it up. <laughs> just get into the minutia of weird, like esoteric processes. Maybe you should <laughs> go to law school. <laughs> I'd probably be good at it. You'd probably be pretty good at it. <laughs> I I don't have the uh, I don't have that magician's like quality to me where I like to be right or I like to get one up on people. Like, uh, I don't have that. I don't uh, have that. That I'm not the guy at the Dungeons and Dragons table who likes to, you know, read up on the rules and like lawyer you out of stuff and like get one up on you because of it. I'm a, I'm quiet about it. I'm more of like ha- I, I I have it but don't need it. <laughs> kind of like I, That's how I am actually. Like I know you're wrong, but I'm going to let you have it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I I think it's incredibly rude to call people out on, you know, things like that especially in co- casual conversation. But yeah, it's it is a weapon I I do have a uh, Batman utility belt <laughs> of that at my don't, disposal. Don't make me but, use it. But see, that's what makes me a hero, Kyle, is that I have I have an atomic bomb at the ready, but I've never dropped it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm above that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, this plan is to set up these power lines, and I mean, long story short, Godzilla shows hey, up. Dude, it night. takes him no time. He just like no time. Like, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm just racking my brain trying to think of a, a situation, a movie where they do all, like, put all this time and effort into stopping something, and it does absolutely nothing. I know it's happened in other movies, but I can't, th- I couldn't think of the example. Uh, but yeah, the, the procedural aspects that I was hinting at earlier was we do actually get to see the people working at the power station and we do get to, we are shown footage of them being competent and on the job. Yeah. <laughs> but what you could have done is insert just like a, a camera pan over to like a Japanese Nedry yeah. <laughs> with a messy desk. Yeah. And that's like, oh, that, that would be an alternate cut. It's like, oh no, Godzilla got through the electrical barricade, not because... Not because he was stronger than the electrical field, but because of gross negligence on the part of, of one Denis Sinedori. <laughs> um, but yeah, he gets through the electrical field, and uh, they're like hitting him with a howitzers and stuff as he's coming through. And uh, this is where we get introduced to his fire breath, which mm-hmm. we'd only seen him do underwater, so we never actually got to see it. We just saw it like a flash of light, and he melts a whole bunch of these towers. Uh, he blows up a bunch of military hardware, and he's just sh- shrugging off everything they throw at him. Yeah, it's doing nothing. And thus begins, like, a, what, like, <laughs> f- 15, 20-minute rampage? Yeah, he's, like, going and he's he's going into a state of Hulkamania right now. <laughs> nothing is <laughs> hulking out. <laughs> nothing, nothing that the Japanese military is doing to him is stopping him. It's only making him more powerful, honestly. Yeah, so what phase of Hulkamania would this be? Is it when he goes, ooh, <laughs> or is it when he does the uh, the Dikembe Mutombo finger? I think it's the Mutombo. I think it's the Mutombo. Or, or is it when he does the, the bicep flexes? <laughs> it's uh, all three. <laughs> there's a, a beautiful moment, if you've ever seen the clip, I think it's when Michael Jordan was playing against Mutombo. Uh, Michael Jordan uh, was like, they were kind of like talking shit, and Michael Jordan's like, oh yeah, watch this. Closes his eyes. Makes the free throw. It's such a good move. Shit on your face. You need to watch that documentary, Trevor. <laughs> I know, Kyle. It, this this is the new Wayne's World quote for the show. 
so folks at home, we used to have a thing where somehow we would end up quoting Wayne's World literally every episode. Dude, it's still happening. I don't know if you've noticed that. We've we've pretty much still been doing it. Yeah, it's it's so subtle though. Yeah. We just kind of rush past it because you and I know it, but yeah. we're not gonna draw attention to it. That's what makes it funny. But now apparently save the last dance or whatever is it. Save the um, last dance. It's just the last dance. <laughs> save the last dance. <laughs> no Julia Stiles in that documentary. <laughs> oh, Julia Stiles. Um, but yeah, Godzilla goes on a rampage here. Uh, we get to see all sorts of nasty carnage, like him breathing fire on people, not just buildings. Uh, tons yeah. of fire effects here. Um, my God, 220-pound suit. I know they cut it in half sometimes so he could just like wear the feet. Uh, because it yeah. was so dangerous for him to be wearing it all the time. Um, but the heat of the costume, the weight of it, combined with just the constant flames, yeah. oof, must have been hazardous. But uh, like I said, Tsuburaya, he, he loves <laughs> he loves blowing shit up, and he gets to do it quite a bit in this se- whole sequence, which, I like I said, is like 20 minutes long. It's just constant destruction. Yeah. <laughs> um, wanton destruction, but... Uh, Ifukube's score really plays a huge part in like the emotionality of these sequences where we have this like ponderous lumbering theme for Godzilla just like trampling buildings and stuff and then whenever the military shows up that the march from the opening title plays and it gives you like a little little hint of hope and then he very quickly blows them away with his fire breath yeah and what's really cool here um, and this is something that was cut from the American version um, that, understandably so, uh, this differs from a lot of B-movies from this era. Um, after the tanks come after him and, like, try to push him back, like, as a final stand, like, in the streets of Tokyo, I, there's a radio dispatch sent out saying, stop shooting at him. Just oh, focus really? on putting, just put out fires. Like, oh, like yeah, they, they send out, like, a mass notice to everybody out there in, in the streets, like, like just we're not gonna win this fight just put out fires and save people i'm picturing that's a that's a huge difference from how monster movies of this era were portrayed picturing uh now godzilla looking and seeing the tanks when they start shooting at him and him going it looks like they have an rv and (laughs) (laughs) and the quarterback is toast (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i always thought that i thought that was really fascinating that um i think that's very much a, a Japanese mentality kind of thing. Like, there's a phrase that I, I use it all. I I don't use it all the time, but I think it a lot. Is <laughs> shikata ga nai, um, basically means nothing can be done. Mm. Um, and it's my understanding that it's kind of just like a philosophy that came about as a result of Japan being a very uh, environmentally uh, unstable location. So you have typhoons, you have tsunamis, you have earthquakes still to this day yeah um it's a very environmentally volatile place so imagine living in ancient times and just like oh am gam got carried away by the wind what do we do it's like well you can be angry at the wind or you can just kind of say okay that happened and move on and that's kind of a very japanese sentiment never considered bad, that. bad things happen and you have to you just have to be okay with it interesting um which is i personally this is this is taking things for a weird a weird walk but actually i've kind of thought that that's um partially responsible for some of the, the political tensions in that region so that you have a culture that's kind of built upon 
moving on and putting pushing pushing things in the past into the past Mm -hmm. where it's like even even the idea of like uh impermanence is is a concept that's it's all over japanese culture the idea of things not lasting forever where you have like a an object or something that it's like oh i will have it for a while it'll rot and i'll be okay with that um you have that philosophy and then you have it rubbing shoulders with other cultures that maybe don't share those sentiments and so all those historic grudges and stuff you have one culture that's fairly okay with you know being like okay shit happened and then other cultures that are like no <laughs> like, <laughs> like you don't get to do that <laughs> so it creates some tension there it's a difference of understanding and just core beliefs but um yeah godzilla is just laying waste to the city um and everything's in flames uh we got a couple of highlights here in the form of some really cool shots of like the the aviary like the bird cage um where you can see his head through it it's just a really cool shot with like a, a bird cage superimposed in front of his face um, we get a cool uh composite shot of him like stepping onto a, a river like mm-hmm. a bridge basically and like it causing the river to overflow into the streets that was cool that was cool and uh the the radio tower is particularly brutal where there's this poor reporter guy who's like doing a live broadcast as godzilla's walking up to him um and he even he's just like saying everything that comes to mind live on the air for the masses to hear he's doing a report and uh he godzilla ends up biting the tower and pushing it down the last thing the guy says is like well this is it folks bye <laughs> like literally that's what he says and, the, and then a tower goes down he dies uh the japanese diet building goes down so that's like their main government facility uh in tokyo uh, so he just walks straight through it um and finally when he's done uh tsuburaya gets to express his love for jet planes um <laughs> and have a bunch of toy planes on fishing line uh show up about 20 minutes too late Um, to shoot some missiles at godzilla as he's leaving so it's like fuck you and the horse you rode in on godzilla's just kind of like what what (laughs) he's he's leaving and he doesn't seem to care too much and it's a curiosity with the the special effects here but like none of these rockets actually impact him just keep zooming past him um but yeah eventually he leaves and uh the general public seems to be very just like more like angry uh, than anything else like down of course because horrible stuff just happened but the shinkichi the, the young man from Odo island all he can say is like basically the equivalent of fuck or shit yeah. <laughs> like that's all it's like that scene in the wire or whatever <laughs> like what are you supposed to do um but one of the scenes that was cut extensively for the american version um is the immediate aftermath so we get like a really great miniature shot of like the remains of tokyo and you can tell that they sourced some photographs from hiroshima and nagasaki um but more than that the the hospital scenes were gutted for the american release because this stuff's pretty rough um, because you have like all sorts of people laid out on stretchers and the makeup effects aren't particularly grisly um, but there's this one part where like a, a little girl's mom dies and yeah. she is just howling. Yeah, we weren't ready to humanize the Japanese at this point. Yeah, we're like, yeah, no, no, we're not. Yeah, we did some awful things to them, but we don't want you to worry about that right now, okay? Because a lot of us that did that are still in office. 
<laughs> yeah, no shit. Um, but yeah, the the scene with the little girl in particular is pretty rough. And like Emiko is there, um, her himbo is also there. Um, they're just trying to do their part, like helping out survivors and stuff. And a lot of these images, more than likely, were were pulled directly from war times and stuff. And it it's not it's not brutal by today's standards, but again, if you put it in context, it's, it's pretty pretty rough. Um, but uh, this is where Emiko comes to a decision uh, to tell her himbo, uh, Ogata, about what Serizawa had shown her earlier. Uh, so we, we, the audience, didn't actually see what she saw, but uh, she was told never to tell anyone about this um, by her supposed fiancé. Um, and so she breaks her promise and she tells Ogata about it, and we, we cut back to her seeing what happened in the tank and basically it's uh all those fish in that really grimy fishbowl by the way yeah. <laughs> like that water is murky those fish couldn't have been happy anyway um <laughs> they turn to skeletons and then they turn to nothing they just turn to dust basically and uh basically this this uh substance that uh Sejizawa pioneered is called the oxygen destroyer and funny enough this actually was in godzilla king of the monsters um, yes. Very, the missile that they hurl at yeah. him out of nowhere uh, that wounds him is like called the Oxygen Destroyer. It's, it's a weird reference. It comes out of nowhere. You either noticed it or you didn't. I remember that now. And I, I don't know if at the time I didn't make that connection. I just can't remember. They easily could have just called it a nuclear bomb. Yeah. Um, but I think they did that because that would have been contradicting themselves because the yeah. whole premise is that he eats the nuclear stuff yeah and it, in the opening sequence of the previous movie we see him get hit by one and it doesn't do anything yeah i kind of want to so watch I, that too. i guess that's i guess that what that's why they would do that i kind of want to rewatch that 2014 one again go for it maybe it's, it's on while. hbo i'm sure <laughs> it is yeah i know king of the monsters is um but anyway this uh the substance is called the oxygen destroyer and apparently it uh eliminates all the oxygen in an environment and turns whatever's inhabiting that environment into goo into fluid as he calls it um and it's basically hinted that this weapon is equivalent to like a nuclear device like yeah. this is this is a brand new innovation in weapons technology that could change the world so he's trying to find a good use for it like some good use for it but until then, he doesn't want to reveal it to the public because uh, politicians and militaries could exploit it and fuck us oh, forever. Oh, they, they will. <laughs> they, they will exploit it. <laughs> so his mindset is correct. Like, you probably should keep this under your hat. Um, and he he's, is approached by Emiko and Ogata. They both show up, and I like how Ogata shows up in a suit because he needs to feel tough in this moment. <laughs> it's like, dude, I've been fucking her. <laughs> and uh, that, that thing you've been keeping secret, she told me about it, and I need it. <laughs> it's like, whoa, you do that in my house? <laughs> in my house? <laughs> in my house. <laughs> uh, but the conversation goes into the basement, and Serizawa is not having any of this shit. He, he will not comply. Um, and we get this curious moment where Ogata starts wrestling with him because he's trying to take the oxygen destroyer by force. And the camera pans behind the fish tank a new fish tank he has new fish um and we hear a scuffle but we don't actually see any of it um but the one-eyed man got one up on him because uh the himbo has a head wound after this <laughs> mm. and 
I like that apologies are in short order. Like immediately after this little bit of violence, he's like, "Oh, dude, I'm hella sorry. Like, yeah. just don't touch my stuff." <laughs> <laughs> I just get a little heated when people mess with my don't stuff. Don't touch my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the real the real kicker here is these two young people, these two hot young people, can't convince the good doctor uh, to relinquish his weapon. Um, but the TV that I had mentioned earlier. Uh, in his man cave uh, just happens to be on um, and a broadcast of a young women's choir uh, starts playing and it's like a a prayer to basically all the people who have passed and you know for the hope of the nation mm. and this composition always stirs emotion in me really um, I don't I think it's an original composition um, I both the melody and with with the choir it it's a really powerful piece of music if you ask me even as a kid i had i would like pause i'd have reactions to it because mm. i i do think it it's powerful like it it actually does carry a lot of emotion to it and um it's doubly effective because it not only worked for me it also works for the characters in the film because uh Sejizawa, uh hears this and uh, he actually turns it off mid broadcasting he's like enough of this shit like you- <laughs> enough <laughs> like, with the clown <laughs> yeah he's he's had enough of this sh- schmaltzy horse shit and he's like okay i get it like a lot of people died and i have the means to maybe prevent more people from dying so he makes it known that like okay i i will hand over the oxygen destroyer but as long as i know about it as long as i have the formula in my head of how to create it uh, humankind isn't safe uh, and he starts burning his papers and Emiko like collapses and starts crying and he tries to console her and I think what's implied here is she knows what's going to happen mm-hmm. like she knows that he's he hasn't said he's going to off himself but he's totally going to off himself he's totally <laughs> <gonna do that. laughs> um, but thus begins the, the final chapter of the film where uh, Ogata insists on going in a diving bell suit uh, down to the bottom of Tokyo Bay, uh, along with uh, Dr. Serizawa, to deploy the oxygen destroyer um, at Godzilla's feet. Um, and what did you think of this sequence, Kyle? Because it's a uh, it's underwater photography, which uh, oftentimes is a bit of a red flag, uh, especially, uh, well, not especially, but exclusively for films of a certain age. Like some of those James Bond movies got a little dive crazy at some points. Um, they drag serious ass. <laughs> I'm curious if you got that vibe from this sequence. I, I was thinking more along the lines of, uh, oh, was it 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Where it's like... Same year, Kyle. Oh, same, same year. year. Interesting. Maybe it was yeah. all. It was just all the rage at that point. Um, Underwater photography, I don't know how long it's been around, but I, I suspect it was fairly new. Uh, yeah, this, I feel like it could have taken a lot longer, but it doesn't take too terribly long. Yeah, uh, it's it's surprisingly well put together. Yeah. It it if you ask me, it, it could use a little bit of trimming. And in fact, the American cut does excise some of these shots because we we really don't need to see two. I guess awkward, like two people awkwardly fumbling around in literal diving bell suits, like not scuba gear. I guess the novelty in what's that in the Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. I guess that's why we spent a little bit more time on it. I mean, I think you could have just cut some of that out because what do we really want to see? We want to see the squid monster at the end. 
I know I did when I was a kid. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, basically, it's just two guys fumbling around. And the whole time I was rewatching this sequence, I was thinking to myself, man, people are nuts. Yeah, right. Just, just the idea of going down in, in that kind of diving suit. It's like, okay, so you mean I'm in like a like just a leathery suit with a, a steel helmet and my only connection to the surface is a rope and a garden hose? There's <laughs> an excellent series. I think it was on uh, AMC. I watched the first season. It's called The Terror. And it was about oh, yeah, yeah. about that arc. They were trying to find the, the, the passage through the Arctic, basically. Yeah, the top of the world. Yeah. And three ships ended up being frozen and abandoned there. There was definitely, like, cannibalism and stuff, but one of the scenes they have is one of the earliest uh i'm sure this was i think like early at the time was a guy uh being lowered in in one of these old 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 suits and i'm just like uh there's no way there's no way i would get into that fucking thing especially then no no god no just just watching these people who were probably set up in the most safe of circumstances possible at the time uh, no <laughs> no fuck fuck that yeah i'd like to when did people figure out about uh, the bins? Like, how long did it take people to figure that stuff out? Oh, yeah, for real. I have no idea. Um, but, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people suffered some serious symptoms without really understanding why for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for a very long time. Uh, it's like with you hanging out with your friends doing diving contests and shit it's like oh fuck i don't feel so good <laughs> a buddy of mine he uh he's an underwater welder and he uh he did stuff in lake i think it was on lake washington it was like north i think the school's on the north part of lake or no lake uh what's goddamn lake union uh, yeah I, think, I, I actually know the school you're talking about yeah i've seen it yeah uh that's where he was and so he came home and uh he i he left in like the middle of the night and i didn't know what was up he went to the emergency room because uh, he was having the bins, uh, and they put him in like uh, an oxygen decompression chamber for a while, for like eight hours. And the guys at the school got mad at him. They're like, "Why didn't you come here?" And he's like, "I didn't, I didn't realize that, like, I didn't realize that that's what it was when I went to the to the hospital." <laughs> yeah, he had to sit in a, he had to sit in a chamber for eight hours to decompress. Oh. Thankfully, I had it hammered into my head from a very early age that decompression chambers are a thing that you have to do in order to explore the deep sea. Um, thanks to movies like Sphere and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, oh, the, Deep Star 6 and shit oh, like that. I need to watch Deep and Star the 6. Abyss. The Abyss was like they had to stay eight hours to comp- – like, I think it was like 16 hours to, like, to get started. He's like, you have to wait two weeks uh, to go back up. I'm like, that's insane. <laughs> Yeah, no, my, my dad explained to me about pressure and stuff from when I was pretty young, and thanks to movies, I I, I got the hint. Yeah. It's like, y- you don't want to explode. Yeah. <laughs> it would be the kind of thing where I'd be in a situation where that wouldn't be relevant at all. I'd just be like in an underwater habitat, like five feet below the surface, be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, <laughs> do I got to decomp or what? <laughs> now, free, free diving, you don't have to decompress. Yeah, <laughs> but I'd still ask. Like, yeah. oh, whoa, 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 you sure? That was what my question was when I saw those like crazy free divers and stuff like that. I'm like, do you have, don't you have to decompress? Like, no, you you you're holding your breath. Like, yeah, I'd be like, whoa, dude, I, I seen D Star Six. I know what happened to Miguel Ferrer. He exploded. Yeah. <laughs> like, I seen this movie before. I'm not gonna be that guy. Um. Anyway, back to Godzilla. Yeah, so. it is kind of crazy. Like that. This is how how Godzilla gets it. It's kind of cute too. 
<laughs> I've always thought this was a curious end to this movie, actually. It, it is. Um, because, and a lot of that has to do with my confusion over the origin of the monster. Because, like I said, I, in rewatching this film that I've, I've seen the American version of anyway, probably a dozen times, and Japanese version probably two or three times, um, with, with me having that misunderstanding about where the monster came from, I always thought it was strange that it's like, okay, so he was born from a weapon of mass destruction and he would, he met his end via a different weapon of mass destruction. Yeah. It's like, what does, what, what the, the allegory is a little confused there where it's like, what exact, what's the message we're trying to get across here? Fire, fire with fire. Yeah. It's like when in doubt, blow it up harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Basically. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's strange no matter how you slice it, but it is a way to end a movie. Although, you know, there is an alternate story that, I don't know if it's been explored yet. Maybe in future Godzilla sequels, this is something they could do. But what about like a... Well, no, they, they did this with that Netflix animated series that I haven't watched. Um, it's a There's a three-part Godzilla animated series, like a series of movies, um, where the premise is Godzilla is just this ongoing problem for the planet, not just Japan. Uh, and other monsters emerge, and it gets so bad to the point that humanity has to leave Earth only to return thousands of years later and Godzilla's still there. Oh god damn it. And he's like bigger and god meaner than ever. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> but I am just like saying like wouldn't it be interesting to have like a contemporary Godzilla movie or something where it's like oh well I guess we don't have a way of getting rid of him so what would the world look like if you lived in constant threat of a giant monster just showing up someday? Well, he's a reptile so he can drown. So what about cement galoshes? Uh, he he's Godzilla. He, he he lives underwater generally, so he like that's out the window. He's but not he, a reptile. He's something. He's a what's it? But he, if you did immobilize uh, Kyle, I'm I'm gonna stop this thread here because we haven't watched Shin Gojira yet. Okay. Because um, this discussion will come up again, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll we'll get there in a few weeks. Um. Anyway, yeah. Long story short, the oxygen destroyer is deployed, and Ogata, um gets kicked up to the surface against his wishes and he's like screaming for Sejizawa as um, the good doctor watches and confirms that the device is working like Godzilla's suffering he can tell it's doing its job um, and immediately after that he wishes the the happy couple which I don't even think they ever like really got around to telling him what was up but he kind of figured it out yeah they're pretty good looking you should be able to figure it out and he's there all the time mm -hmm. <laughs> like he's at that house all the time i'm sure the dad knew what was up i did like that scene we kind of we, we missed that but yeah i did like that scene yeah there's a fun confrontation between the elder yamane and ogata where they they do actually butt heads yeah, he's, he's like, like get, get out of my house like, get the fuck out of my house I'm like yeah. it, it's a dad move yeah it's an old dad move <laughs> it's, it's an old dad with a daughter move yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> i know what's well, going on here <laughs> Well, it's a it's a short dad with a daughter move because yeah. he's he's a tiny man. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta use those words and that body language because you ain't got anything else to work with. But um, anyway, yeah, the good doctor cuts his oxygen line, and so when they're trying to pull him up, they just get a, a cut air hose. And it's like, oh, he killed himself. Uh, so he didn't. He burnt all of his papers. So the oxygen destroyer is a non-factor. I can't be used again. Um, 
and then Godzilla bubbles to the surface, and uh, he gets his his death rattle that is kind of silly looking because it's definitely yeah. a hand puppet in, in a in a bathtub, yeah. just kind of going. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he just like bibbles and bobbles like a pretty, bowling pin or something. <laughs> pretty cute, yeah. It is kind of cute, and then he falls down to the ocean's floor, and uh, we get to see him turn to bones and then into nothing. Mm. So. This is the movie confirming he, he he's dead. dead. Yes. Yeah, he did. Uh, and it's kind of funny actually. In a much later Godzilla movies, they made a Mecha Godzilla out of his bones. Oh, that's like, pretty badass. That's metal. Like, like it, it's pretty fucking metal. It's pretty so metal. The, yeah, the, this Godzilla from the '54 movie, um, they take his bones and they build a Mecha Godzilla around it. Um, and the the storyline in that movie, like presupposes that there have been multiple Godzillas and this movie actually kind of plays into that as well but um yeah the movie kind of ends similar to King Kong where Dr. Yamane is just on the deck of the ship everybody does a salute to the good doctor who sacrificed himself and Dr. Yamane just kind of laments that's like you know uh, it stands to reason that we got one of these big dinosaurs coming out of the earth's core or whatever Uh, if we keep blowing shit up maybe we'll get another one he looks directly into the camera. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, so there is there is a little bit of a sequel bait at the end. Um, and in fact, this movie did get a direct sequel, which that character is featured in, thereby confirming that it's the same timeline um, with a new Godzilla, which is kind of goofy when you think about it. But um, yeah, then we get our uh, our traditional Japanese ending uh, with Owari, the, the end <laughs> of flying towards us and then fade to black and that was godzilla 1954 yeah yeah good stuff yeah it was good stuff it's a little hard to talk about because it is one of those it's like kind of a legit good movie and there's a lot of layers to it um i do think the the general mood of it and like the presentation of the story being so much like the story of an entire nation and people uh in peril as opposed to just like a town or or some or you know our our breeding pair or whatever <laughs> like it it really has a big feel to it where it's like we can see like masses of people having to scramble to meet the threat and all the destruction scenes kind of play into that as well and i in historical context i think is like the m- most most effective way to view the film because if you just watch it for what it is for like a child or something, I derived entertainment from it as like a really little kid. But for like casual entertainment or something, I think this movie would be kind of hard to digest if you didn't at least try to roll the clock back in your brain a little bit and put yourself in the shoes of a 1950s person. Yeah. Um, but what was your experience like this time around, Kyle? Uh, this time it was harder for me to watch uh, just because of my schedule this week. Um, but I think the first time I watched it, I had like a glass of wine just to kind of, you know, cause older movies, you're like, I'm going to ease in a little bit, but I enjoyed watching it this time, um, trying to pick up on things. I was trying to notice like, uh, the special effects this time around. Um, and it, they're actually kind of hard to notice, uh, more so than in, uh, in King Kong, King Kong, it's pretty, pretty easy to see. Um, but yeah, I, paid attention more to the uh the godzilla destruction scenes as well just to really take in the miniatures yeah i I think the the score and the lighting in particular 
are are a huge differential between between the two films because mm-hmm. king kong like the score tells you this is an adventure film yeah. like you're meant to be exhilarated whereas this one that like ponderous like lumbering theme that plays when godzilla is wrecking shit in tokyo um it doesn't it doesn't feel thrilling it's no. like oh this is gloomy and and bad like everything we're seeing here is really bad and there was and some of the wanton destruction we see like there's some stuff i i forgot to highlight um one of which is some people that uh, there's that famous painting it's I, I can't it's like a night something or other night birds maybe night hawks maybe it's the diner yeah in the middle of the night i think it's called night hawks but um there's a shot that looks really similar to that in this movie where it's uh, just a few citizens like getting too close to the action and peering over this wall that looks like the entry to like a subway or something and sure enough, like Godzilla doesn't even look at them, and he just like casually knocks over a building that falls on them. And it's like, damn, he didn't even know they were there. But you know, such, that'll happen when you're dealing with a giant lizard that doesn't really seem to have any reason for doing the things that it does. It's not like you're not even ants to him; he's not going to notice you. And the other big one was the the woman with her kids. Mm. Uh, that wasn't actually cut for the American version, but that because it wasn't subtitled, uh, the American audience wasn't privy to what she was saying. <laughs> but what she's saying is, and she gets her own camera angle, we zoom in on her. And so we see all these flames dancing around her and she's just squatting in the corner, like on a st- like just on a street corner with like two kids huddled together with uh, a couple bags of like clothes and stuff. And she says like, well, we're going to where daddy is. We'll see oh, daddy yeah. soon. Like it's like, Jesus. that's dark yeah that's dark there's some <laughs> really ominous only like in one scene i think uh where we have like a really ominous like uh like almost just like a piano like boom boom i think it's the second time when they're getting ready to shoot him it was the lights after he told them about the lights and i, I think that's when it was yeah i think you're right um, it's, it's during the Tokyo Bay attack sequence but I, um, when he's like flipping bridges and stuff. Yeah, I was getting ready to write it down, but I'm like, I should remember. But yeah, it's like really dark in that one moment. The the footfall is an interesting thing because they make no attempt to actually make that be the sound of his footsteps. Oh, it's that? actually just the score. Like it's actually supposed to be instrumentation because it's never in sync with his movements, but it often heralds his, like, arrival. Not, yeah, it's not when he's actually moving. It's more of, like, when he's moving off screen. But it's not so much a sound effect of him actually stomping. It's the drum, but it's kind of implied that it's him. Yeah, I'm really glad you highlighted the opening credits as soon as we started because, like, I get chills when I see that now because the, the Toho logo is virtually identical even to this day. Uh, so if you can picture that in your head... Mm. Uh, when we fade up to that, and you just hear, boom, yeah, boom, and then the Godzilla roar, um, I think Shin Gojira like begins the same Ooh, way, really? and many other Godzilla movies have done that as well, and it's like, it's like the perfect way to ease you into like, ooh, this is gonna be a good one. Yeah, well, like I th- <laughs> I'm thinking like 1954. There's no movie like Godzilla. I mean, King Kong was around, but like this is a completely different film. So. You start off with that. It's like, oh, dude, like I don't even know what this is gonna be. This is exciting. Yeah, and the the roar itself is such an alien sound. Yeah, like especially at that time, like like you said, like I don't know what the fuck that is. All I know is it's really menacing, and I don't like it. <laughs> like I remember watching Godzilla '98 and thinking, I'm like, that's 
that's a crazy noise. Like, that's so different than, like, we had seen Jurassic Park at that point. Like, yeah, I have no idea what that is. Imagine that in 1954. Like, no idea what that is. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, too, because in the Showa era in particular, they, they cleaned it up a bit. They made it more... It doesn't sound any more natural, like, in terms of, like, animal noise and whatnot. It just... It's processed in such a way that it sounds less abrasive and and more more palatable i guess um but then when we get to 1984 which was supposed to be a return to like godzilla being a menace again um they actually rolled the clock back and they used pretty much the original roar nice you know 30 years later after years of having it be more cleaned up and stuff and it it actually really works for that movie is your godzilla your showa era uh criterion are they all blu-ray yes oh so you've got all do you, is this the first batch you're gonna have of all blu-ray of these yeah oh man yeah. that's so exciting uh this seems like the perfect time to both close the episode and announce the next episode mm. so um we have five tuesdays in uh yes. march so we'll have five weeks of monster movies and whatnot Why not? Um, yeah. so so there's one that I haven't quite decided, um, but next week, I, being as we've been being as we have been going in like chronological order, it seems fitting that uh, the big movie at the end of the line is Godzilla vs Kong, mm. which will be out at the end of the month. Um, but 1962, King Kong vs Godzilla ah. seems seems like the right time for that episode. Um, so we'll get to see the original clash between these two titans, um, and. Uh, what I wanted to hint at here, um, we'll get into rather, was that this uh, Showa era Criterion box set uh, represents the first time that I personally will ever be having a chance to see the Japanese cut of King Kong vs. Godzilla. Oh. Uh, so this will be a mutual catching up, Kyle, nice. for a Godzilla movie. Wow. <laughs> um, so for all my talk of being a Godzilla super fan, uh, there are things that I have I have not experienced in his filmography, and that is one of them. So nineteen the nineteen sixty two King Kong v Godzilla is the Jap- like the Japanese version you haven't seen. I've seen the American cut, but there are major differences between the two. Interesting. And the the Japanese cut, as far as I know, has only ever been released in this country via the Criterion Collection. Oh, so that's I might actually have to borrow that because it doesn't <laughs> look like it's anywhere. Yeah, I'll I'll get it to you somehow because yeah, that sucker is hard to fucking find. And oh. believe me, I I have considered purchasing it on eBay many times over the years. Um, but then this happened, and I was like, fuck it, we're doing this shit right. <laughs> uh, do you want my copy of War of the Worlds as collateral, or uh, <laughs> or maybe my uh, yeah. maybe my Von Trier collection? Uh, criterion bartering system. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want. I might actually trade you because I do want you to see Come and See. Uh, I I I think that would be worth you watching. I'd totally watch it. But um, anyway, uh, the the other episode that I haven't decided on is I was hinting at Gut, as a King Kong nineteen seventy six, but I don't. <laughs> I I am so concerned that you will absolutely detest that film. I, so the other suggestion I had would be a uh, King Kong Escapes, um, which is a uh, it's a Toho film. So a lot of the same special effects technicians from Godzilla 1954 doing a King Kong movie wherein there is a Mecha Kong. Um, See, I feel like we're 
we're defaulting to Japanese properties when I feel like we should be at least exploring the American side of this. And I, I think we should go through and watch the 76 King Kong. I, I want it because I've seen a, cl- I've seen a clip of it. I'm like, that's a dude in a gorilla suit. So I kind of want to see that. Uh, Jessica Lang in her prim prime. I mean, yeah. And, uh, Jeff uh, Jeff Bridges, I believe you said, yeah. Jeff Bridges and Charles Grodin, yeah. You said Jeff Bridges, and I'm like, well, th- obviously, I want to watch that one. So, I, I feel okay. like we should do that. I think it'll be fun. Okay, it's it's it'll be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that being said, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us for this very special episode of Catching Up on Cinema. And if you would like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. We also have a couple of social media accounts in the form of an Instagram at catchinguponcinema, as well as a Twitter at catchingcinema. So feel free to hit me up there if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, any of that bullshit. Um, And the show is available on pretty much any podcasting platform you can imagine, so fucking Google it. Uh, That being said... Uh, Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Yeah.